Estimates place the amount of Earth's land area dedicated to buildings and other fixed structures to be no more than 3%. But of that land, nearly half is exclusive to roads and parking structures in some urban areas. This fact, obviously a consequence of the prevalence of the automobile, illustrates the importance of transportation, a key pillar to modern civilization. Connecting people, goods, and services has always been important. But as the cost of movement has dropped and the speed has increased, the value of the network has only grown, which Metcalf defined as proportional to the square of the nodes, or in this case, destinations. As technology pushes us farther and more safely, the era of globalization may very well extend beyond the globe and into the stars. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Uh, hello and welcome back to the show, the show of the 20th century and the mist therein. Well, we're uh, we're going to do maybe a sort of a tangential one tonight. We've been doing a lot of uh, philosophical and political stuff, and Hans and I are sort of uh, aficionados of the technical, and I thought we'd, we'd do something on that wavelength uh, for the time being, and then we got something uh, planned for next time that's uh, a little bit more uh, of the uh, traditional format. But tonight, we'd like to do something on transportation, and it kind of uh, is in the spirit of maybe that show we did on the development of the West where there was just a lot of infrastructure poured into making water uh, transmission uh, in particular and transportation of water actually uh, to people and to where they need it and uh, all the development that is enabled by that. But obviously there's many types of transportation and one of the books that I was uh, inspired by to focus on this topic was this thing called geography of transport systems. And I took uh, took a you know a couple pages in notes. Uh, I, I I don't think it's a good format for us to really go through step by step because I think it's it's very academic. But since we're a history show, I thought we could use that as sort of a, a reference guide to some of the technical aspects, and then use uh, basically just the development throughout history of transportation to talk about this general topic. And then Hans also had a book that he was tossing around on some of the technology as well, uh, the history of transportation technology, which uh, I looked through, uh, and that's a little bit more chronological. But there's no real fixed format tonight. Hans and I are just going to kind of go back and forth. But I, I thought I'd start with uh, an anecdote. <clears throat> as I was uh, coming home this evening, I was thinking about what we might talk about. And I've uh, I've since left the big city, as I think 
some people might remember, but one of the things that I discovered pretty quickly living in the sticks, as it were, is, uh, you know, animals actually have their own networks of transportation. Uh, the deer, deer trail is probably the simplest example I can, I can give. But what's funny about that is I never really realized it until I got out into the, the woods is that, you know, animals are obviously different than people, but they're not that different in the sense that they don't want to waste time getting from A to B either. And it's funny because you'll see obstructions that a person would see the same way and not want to go through it. And the animals are almost identical. And that's where those trails come from. They, they usually look for the easiest path to, in the deer's case, to get to the next forage location for them. And then they actually go in circles usually along these pathways. Uh, but why is that a thing? It's basically enabling them to accomplish what they want with less energy because there's no obstructions. You know, in the simplest example of, of a road, uh, why do we have roads? Well, it's, uh, well, have you ever gone into the woods and noticed there's no roads? It's really slow. Uh, I remember when I was younger in my sort of boy scout days, uh, we'd sort of just go on our own sometimes and do these camping trips, uh, just, you know, with this kind of frontier frontiersman spirit. And we try to just climb a mountain off trail. And the problem was, it took like several days just to get to the base of the stupid thing we're actually trying to climb because the vegetation and the fallen logs and the rocks and the ravines and the and the water it just gets in your way uh and it's it's something i think if you grow up in an urban area you take for granted but all this stuff has to be developed in a general sense and so that's really what transportation does it it, it makes it efficient to move sounds simple, but it's actually not if you actually want to accomplish it, especially if you have to, you know, do a lot of, uh, a lot of scale obviously, but also sometimes these things are not easily done with easily obtainable technologies. Um, so I think the first thing I'm aware of, you know, that humans started doing was, you know, they, they probably cut down some trees to build a house and that, frees up, you know, a little space. And then in order to trade, in order to go hunting or, uh, get your goods to market or buy goods yourself, you know, you probably had to make your own road. And then eventually, um, you get to an area where there's enough people where you don't own that land. Maybe somebody else does, and they might administer that road. And if you're in a kingdom, the King probably owns it. And if he's, uh, a, magnanimous type of king he'll probably provide some of that for the commons but you know otherwise you you have to worry about you know people raiding you you know so a lot of this stuff is um it's very interesting how it developed but eventually we got to the point where roads actually were a big deal and i think the first example i can think of in the west you know obviously is is in rome i mean you had the roman network that really enabled in particular the, uh, the legions to move about and subdue any, any resistance. But I think also the, the trade aspect was really important. And you know, prior to that, I mean, in the, in the sort of ancestral civilization of the Greeks uh, and the Phoenicians and all the Mediterranean peoples, uh, the water was also extremely important as well. 
So I'm just kind of, you know, going, going off of, you know, my sort of general understanding and not going into the particulars of these, these books I mentioned, but I thought that'd be a nice place to start Just sort of, why does this all matter? Where does it come from? How did it develop? How did we get here? Um, so Hans, what do you think about the, uh, the meaning of transportation? What does it mean and why is it important? Why is it important? Well, it's important, uh, for very <clears throat> obvious and not very novel reasons. Uh, number one, it's the way to unlock quality of life. So most human society really has revolved around expanding quality of life. Uh, for the people that run the society and people, you know, as part of the wider society in general, um, need to keep everybody happy. So in order to do that, <clears throat> need to move goods around, need to move people around, need to move things around, need to move resources around. Easiest way to do that is to have good transportation systems. Um, this could be as simplistic as just carving pads, um, and having, you know, trained guidesmen which I'm sure was the preferred mode of transportation for um, prehistory. And eventually unlocking waterways, creating canal locks or rudimentary canal locks, uh, rudimentary artificial waterways um, was the, the, the most obvious and uh, cheapest way to move anything around for a very long time. Uh, rudimentary boats were popular as well. There was evidence of, you know, small boats being made in the deep prehistory of Western Eurasia, the time of uh, sort of the, the end of the Ice Age, really. Already there were, you know, boats moving people from A to B and likely goods and, and, uh, and people to do services and so forth. So that's probably you know, the number one reason why it's important. Um, Transportation ultimately is, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's not just a, a system, but it's an economic model in of itself. Um, there's quite a lot of economic activity that comes out of building transportation. Um, just the, you know, the, the amount of uh, labor and time-intensive engineering and resources that go into any transportation project, even something as, you know, what we would think perhaps as um, simplistic as a dirt road or a, a mildly flat and maintained dirt road in, you know, let's say the Iron Age, um, not even a, a ro proper Roman road, just a, a dirt road. Um, that alone, you know, uh, would have created a huge amount of economic activity. Moving people from A to B, moving logs and stones to, you know, be placed perhaps underneath the dirt road, given a nice smooth texture. So dirt wouldn't come, you know, could compact easily, wouldn't get too much mud, um, wouldn't sink too much, things like that. Maintaining it, um, even just going and getting these resources, having people around to, to run it. Uh, and then you evolve into the kinds of transport systems we see in East Asia and Mesopotamia and the Roman Empire. And, you know, these of themselves are huge vectors of economic activity. The Roman road system was like an economy in of itself, not even the economy it supported. Um, so it's important in that sense as well, because 
you know, a big piece of growing of people and growing a society is giving them something to do and giving them something to hone their skills at, to research, um, and to expand their knowledge and to maintain, you know, giving people a purpose to maintain something is a huge cultural benefit. So one of the commonalities between many of the civilizations in the Iron Age, let's say, uh, the late Bronze Age, um, was that uh, in, in Rome as well, and, and uh, I suppose some of the Chinese states, giving people access to the road as a as a, almost a piece of property. So, you know, the Romans, for example, would reward a piece of um, piece of the road and say to someone, "Your job is to maintain the land next to the road and your stretch of the road that your land borders. You maintain it." keep it clean, you do repairs, check on it, all of this sort of stuff. In return, you get a nice deal on this property, and it's a win for everybody. It's a win for the state. It's a win for prospective um, property owners. It's a nice investment. It's about capital growth. So transportation isn't just supporting an underlying economy. It is its own economy. Uh, you see that a lot today. There's, you know, huge and small private investors in all kinds of transportation and infrastructure projects. Um, you could say that, you know, a, a warehouse owner in the Midwest who owns maybe two small warehouses, he's part of the transportation system. Um, and it's his, it's his nice vector of capital growth. You know, he gets property he invests in, he makes money off of it. He facilitates a wider economy to win for everybody. Everybody benefits. So that's, that's kind of like the basics of, you know, the economics of transport systems at their core. Then, yeah. there's, then there's the more detailed stuff we'll get into, just yeah. how it all really works. Yeah, the, the engineering of it is one aspect. And then obviously the economics, I think, is maybe the majority of the rest of it, I would say. Yeah. Because it, it, it really, it's the why are we even doing this? And then the engineering is the how. But taking the the Roman roads, uh, while we're on the topic, I've actually looked at cross sections of different types of road construction techniques. Um, partly because I actually had to build a road, um, for myself <laughs> where I live and it's a lot of work. And if you, again, don't realize actually what's gone into the development of the designs of these things, uh, you, you will learn them through basically noticing that your road actually really sucks. And one of the, the earliest things that I learned was you have to control water very quickly because otherwise water is basically just going to ruin your road. Um, whether it's going to be, you know, full of mud puddles or washing out completely or doesn't give you the proper, um, increase in, grade to, you know, the rise over run kind of thing. You have to factor all that in with the vehicles that are going to be driving over it. Or if you're walking over it, I guess, you know, you don't have to worry about this as much, but water is a big one. And one of the things that the Romans did was, and, and this is partly why they were so unique in that they had the infrastructure in place and the manpower and, money really to make it happen and why nobody else could do it. And what, what made them so special was that they had this system that enabled the construction of 
the roads. And it wasn't just they knew how to do it. It was that they could do it. And part of that is if you look at a Roman road, it's made out of a bunch of rock uh, that are actually fit together in a very precise way. They're smooth. Okay. So it's not just some random rock. You actually have to find proper types of rock and transport them to where they're actually going down on the road. Because if you just take earth randomly, you're not usually going to get what you want. You're going to get a bunch of silt or uh, sand or something that just doesn't fit right. And if you, you know, if you drive over sand, I mean, you're going nowhere. If you ever going to the beach and try to run at it, it's a lot harder, uh, you know, let alone driving a vehicle. So those types of things have to be all be considered. And so the fact that they had roads enabled them to build more roads, which is kind of interesting. It's sort of a, I don't know what, what, the, what that's called exactly, but it's, it's kind of a network effect, I guess. And they used a, a, a development system. They had crews basically that knew what they were doing. And then they did it over and over again, like an assembly line so that they would bring all the, all the goods on the road that they had just built onto the section where they're going. And then they would have guys out there with pickaxes and then you'd have to slope it so that there's a crown in the middle so that the water would go into these gutters and then they'd be, you know, and Romans are famous for other infrastructure like aqueducts and things like that. So they knew what they were doing with water and they would actually create a, a rock surface for these, uh, these roads. And that was, that's what made them so durable because if you just had a very low budget and not a lot of manpower and, te- and technology and crews of oxen and horses and, you know, a trade network to get the goods to where you needed, uh, y- you would just end up with this dirt road that would get overgrown. It would get full of water. It would, it would wash out and it would just be terrible. And you couldn't go very fast on it if, if at all. So that all, all that matters, like all the, the backup systems enable this. And I don't think people really grasp that until they, they really examine it or try to do it themselves. Um, and again, it was such a unique system that only a certain civilization could produce it. And, you know, we, we jump forward a little bit to the interstate highway system just to talk about the economics of it briefly, because it's sort of the modern equivalent. I think the most recent example I can think of that sort of was groundbreaking and no, no pun intended, but it, it was such a big scale and it was obviously inspired by the Autobahn in Germany, but yeah, the, the U S interstate highway system was, was much bigger obviously because Germany can fit in, into Texas with room to spare. So there's, um, there's just so much more land and, you know, I didn't memorize the statistics on this, but I was curious, you know, there was several billion dollars put into the program and inflation adjusted. I don't know exactly what it, what it amounted to, but it was, it was so important uh, by the way that, um, and this is a topic I, you know, if anybody is curious about it, let us know. I, I'd, I'd like to do a topic on construction equipment at some point, because, uh, I read a book called uh, yellow steel, which was really good. And it talked about Caterpillar and companies like that, where the interstate highway system was so important economically that these companies basically depended on the continuance of it. And when the highway system was kind of winding down in terms of like the majority of the interconnects were done in the seventies, I think, uh, these companies were, their stocks were selling off. And so a lot of money, uh, is the main point, but what is the real 
economic analysis that you need to do on this stuff. I would argue it's okay. Obviously we're generating a lot of activity. Like that's the Keynesian sort of argument. Okay. Well, if we need to get, you know, the economy moving, we're just going to spend money to get people to, you know, dig holes and then fill them up. And then hopefully, you know, that, that, that sparks the animal spirits to get people uh, buying again. And then we get out of the depression. Well, wouldn't it be nice though, if they were actually digging holes that were useful, uh, and so that's sort of where you apply the logic of return on investment. And so according to, uh, Wikipedia and I looked elsewhere, but I, I couldn't find anything in, you know, in the couple of minutes I was looking, uh, the, there's an estimate that says that for every dollar spent on the interstate highway program, $6 were generated in economic return. And, and I think that's probably a low estimate, frankly, because, uh, just imagine how the hell this country would work without that that highway system. I mean, you, you couldn't get to work. You know, the goods wouldn't go nowhere. Amazon wouldn't work. You'd have to get everything off a train. Uh, and so I mean, that's a good point. You know, it would, you would basically, uh, you'd have no interstate trucking system. No, so the and, idea, and trucks the idea, are 85%, believe it or not, yeah, of so the you, goods that are transported in this the, country, at least the supply chain would look just so wildly different. I mean, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, easy availability of things like last mile delivery and all these three PLs or uh, so third party logistics companies that service all these niches in, you know, after trucking and they have small trucking and they have delivery, you know, trucks or they have the little sprinter vans. Now they can just kind of service, you know, boxes. And I mean, you wouldn't have any of that. You wouldn't have nearby warehouses. You wouldn't have loading centers. You wouldn't have drop off centers. You wouldn't have, pickup stores you like you would there's so many things you would just simply not have everybody would have to live to this day in ever larger complex like city states which is like you know 1840s america you would have to live in that if you wanted access to anything well it used to be much more local i mean you know forget about globalization i mean you know before the highway and even the railroad it's like you know, that, that was it. You go down the road to find the blacksmith if you wanted something or the shoemaker. Well, so you wouldn't, you know. it wouldn't be like the blacksmith, but you would, so you would still have industry. But all it depends on what time is, period we're talking is super, about. It's super vertical, but... it's super vertically integrated and it's all in one place. And that's not to say, okay, so it's a different model. I mean, it worked well, but it would just look radically different from today if you didn't have the interstate highway system. Um, right. there, there would be so many amenities of life in the United States that would simply not be possible. Um, suburban economies would struggle. I mean, really struggle. It would basically be like European village life. It would still be nice and it would, you would have technology, but you wouldn't have, um, anything resembling all of the, the like economic advantages that the suburbs have if right. the interstate if the interstate system's not there even even less sophisticated systems I, yes. I I think at the very basis of it transportation enables specialization which is one of the first right. things yeah. you learn in economics is like the basis for wealth it, it's comparative advantage in that you know I could become a shoemaker or a baker or whatever. But I'm not good at any of those things, so I should probably do what I'm good at. And this is like what we're living with today, where 
nobody actually understands how anything works because they live in urban areas and they have one job. Like you're a lawyer. Well, right. Yeah. That's not possible unless you have transportation because the lawyer doesn't grow his food. He doesn't build his house. He doesn't build his car. He doesn't understand how any of that works. So he, he knows his law stuff, which is really only important for a, a certain segment of the economy, which then, you know, builds all those other things. Well, but it would be, it, requ- I, I it, it allows that, trade and it really I, is fundamental. I think that, um, so the life of, of someone like John Adams is really illustrative of this, our second president. Uh, so John Adams was a part-time lawyer, uh, and he was also a part-time farmer. He was Farmer John, and he really, uh, you know, his whole life is a series of recountings of, you know, the annual summer trip uh, or spring trip up to uh, his cottage in Braintree uh, to uh, escape the flu every year but also to, to farm because, you know, he simply couldn't make enough money as a lawyer in the city. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, there wasn't that much food coming into Boston every year. Most people left. Most people had, uh, you know, they had property outside the city and they lived out, you know, because transportation was so slow, it's not like you could jet back and forth from the suburbs back to the city. It was several days you had to travel each way. So that wasn't feasible. So he would go for a few months, and then he'd come back, and then he'd go for a few months, and he'd come back. And this was the pace of life for this man. Uh, for uh, how he lived, he lived forever. I mean, you know, he just he just refused to die. But for for seven, eight decades, this was his lifestyle. But this was this is how life would be if you didn't even have you know rudimentary transportation. You would have had late 18th century America, where there was transportation, there were some of these road networks, and there was global shipping, although you had to be at the coast to really access it and then wait months for it to get to you, even if you were just in Appalachia. Uh, but you had to basically you know, be capable of doing all things at once. You could not be easily be a full-time lawyer. Uh, there were very few full-time lawyers. John Adams was, you know, went to law school. He was well-educated. Uh, and even he struggled to be a full-time lawyer, just couldn't do it. There was just no way to do it. There was no way to have a high quality of life and do that. So that's the kind of world that you would still have. You would have that dynamic of late 18th century America um, uh, where – People couldn't really specialize in one profession. They had to spend many months out of the year doing something else. It's not until, like Adam is saying, you get to realistically 1870s America, 1880s America, where people really start to specialize. I mean, truly start to specialize. And that, you know, the idea of career, of professionalization, um, private professionalization, becomes extremely stark. And that's really what industry is. That's what industry is. For example, you can look at the growth of private law firms in the United States. And there's a couple studies out there that show this. There's a logarithmic trend that really kicks off after the Civil War, realistically, um, uh, about the growth of private law firms in the United States. And that's because there's so much specialization at that point. 
that you know you can effectively be a full-time lawyer for your entire life and live comfortably doing it and and have a reliable steady stream of food and resources coming into the town or the city uh and you don't have to worry about it you can focus on doing law stuff you have this logarithmic trend uh in a growth trend of um what we would think of now as engineering firms small companies that offer services to build um all kinds of tools uh, railroad accommodations, uh, factory parts, uh, anything, steamship parts, anything. This is actually where Westinghouse basically comes in uh, around this time. The man was, you know, this is a man who was able to be a full-time engineer, a full-time researcher, a full-time, um, let's say, tinkerer, because he didn't need to do anything else he could specialize in just that he'd spent nothing but day in day out in his workshop and in his labs uh perfecting different um products that would eventually make him lots of money but that's not possible until you have you know when westinghouse was coming it's ironic because westinghouse made most of his money his early money from a braking system for trains that wouldn't cause some kind of coupling system or braking system, I can't remember, that basically helped prevent derailings. You basically cut the number of train derailments down by like 80% single-handedly with this one invention, and that's how he got all of his startup cash. But the only, the, idea, the only reason that Westinghouse is able to do that is because this is a man who lived in post-industrial, you know, the post-second uh, industrial revolution, post-Civil War America, there's inland waterways, although they're starting to fall apart even then, but there's a ton of them. There's huge amounts of railroad networks connecting coast to coast. There's global shipping at the ports, so the you know, goods are available everywhere. And there's, you know, they're kind of terrible, but they're still serviceable dirt roads everywhere, gravel roads. You can get things from A to B. That allows a guy like Westinghouse to just work all day. He can just, he can just engineer all day, and he comes up with stuff. So that's kind of, you know, speaking more to, uh, to Adam's point there. Well, yeah, even, um, education is enabled vastly by a lot of this stuff. I mean, the fact that we have summer break is sort of a, a holdover from the agricultural era where people lived on more of a kind of a homestead where they would have to actually go back and help their family do the harvest and that was typically during summer and then the rest of the year they could go learn something but before that there was not enough resources to even have any education really unless you you know went to church or something but you know a five day a week kind of education system was enabled by things like this and it's something again we we take for granted um where, where, where do we go from, from there? I mean, it's, uh, actually I had a, I had a tweet I was looking at. Let me, let me see if I can find it. Yeah. It's funny. You were mentioning farmers and I was mentioning them too. Um, just randomly looking through my files. Uh, I don't know much about this girl other than I remember she popping up on the news because of the, the Dutch farmers protesting. But if you want to get conspiratorial, which we do a lot, obviously, uh, not necessarily, all conspiracies are true, but I would argue some of them almost definitely are. Uh, 
you could argue that because we're so specialized and because what happened during COVID forced, I think, an increase in specialization because people couldn't go anywhere and they had to depend on things like Amazon and, you know, the, uh, the, the transportation network. Uh, you could argue that the government wants this type of thing. And what they don't want is that independent farmer who could live without the interconnections. So her tweet says, uh, or Eva, uh, v- uh, Vlarding broke, uh, it's the, the Dutch girl. The farmers form virtually the only self-reliant societal group in the Netherlands that has enough manpower to bring the government to its knees. And that's exactly why they're trying to get rid of them. Um, you can, you can make of it what you will, if that's true. I, I don't I know if that's really true. I mean, not to detract from what the Dutch farmers are attempting to do. They're not, most of those guys aren't, aren't, aren't self-reliant like at all. I guarantee no, you. I, I completely agree. Part of the reason they're protesting they're is they need, they need petrochemicals for their to generate the fertilizers. And that's why they protested. So yeah, yeah. Those guys, those guys aren't, and then they not, need they need tractor companies to build all their machinery, and then they need trucks. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, look, completely agree. Look, they're industrial they're doing, farmers. They're, they're doing they're doing you know a great job. I mean, the, the sinister thing about what the Dutch government's trying to do to them is bulldoze their farms because the Dutch government is led by um, just really evil minded weirdos that uh, want to fundamentally change the Dutch way of life. Their take is that if they remove Dutch farms, uh, the Dutch way of life, which includes a, a rich diet of meat and dairy, um, will go away. Also, they want to bulldoze these farms to build giant housing complexes for African immigrants. So I don't know what Ava's going on about there. Um, I, you know, she's she's hot, so she's I guess that's what she's good at. But uh, this is a common misconception. And it's ties into transport systems. Those guys aren't self-reliant, and they shouldn't be. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, if they want to be sustenance farmers, that's, you know, more power to you. Um, well, the, not, the Netherlands is one of the most densely populated countries on Earth. Yeah, and they simply could also, not also, farm that land on a self-reliant the Netherlands format. Netherlands not in the agricultural economy to be sustenance and self-reliant. They're in it to make money. The Netherlands is one of the top agricultural producers on the planet, if you believe it or not. And it's a miracle of transport systems. First of all, it's a miracle of Dutch transport systems, internal Dutch transport systems. The Dutch have made incredible, just incredible water reclamation, or I'm sorry, land reclamation policies since the 20s. And or actually going no further. before wasn't the the story before, of like the kid that put his finger on the dike and saved everybody like from well the... it was in I think it was in the 1920s I want to say when the really fully industrialized Dutch program to start reclaiming land mm. get got going but yeah probably I can't talk but at any I, I think the they've Dutch, been building those for a long time this, though they've been at this for well over I mean that, that's what the country's name is from it, it's it means like Nederland like it's like this garbage you know so. They had to figure out how to make some some good out of it. So, the what the land reclamation project in of alone is a miracle of modern transport systems. First of all, moving huge quantities of industrial material to these sites to basically move water and bring land up or put land in 
to move water out of the way, to pump water out of the way, to, to siphon off sections of ocean to move water out. That's incredible. Uh, secondarily, the Dutch have immaculate road systems just in of themselves. They also have a great highway system, um, complete with bridges and overpasses and tunnels. Um, if you really want to see some spectacular transport engineering, there's lots of videos of Dutch and Belgians and I think Germans too, uh, uh, you know, conducting these 24-hour um, bridge repair or overpass repair operations. They prefabricate everything. They know that their country's uh, highway system is limited and complex, so long-term outages or road work is simply not an option. There's a lot of logistics and prefabrication that go into this. They shut down the highway for one night, uh, at the most one full day or 24 hours. They put their new bridge or overpass in place. They make sure everything is good to go, and they move on. You can watch time-lapse videos of this, just incredible engineering and planning. Uh, and thirdly, the Dutch are have, you know, have great ports and inland waterways. So all of this links into the Dutch national strategy before the country was taken over by um, very strange people. Uh, Netherlands was intended to be one of the agricultural powers of like the Western Hemisphere. And they've done that through uh, utilizing their transport infrastructure, but also finding clever ways to bring in very cheaply and effectively what they don't have. So for example, the Dutch don't have quite a lot of plastic manufacturing. In modern farming, you actually need a lot of plastic, believe it or not. You need it for the tarps for your greenhouses, which the Dutch are very fond of. You need it for the tarps for you know your dairy farms. You need it for all kinds of pumps to actually pump dairy out of cows. Um, you know, there's so many things you need that the Netherlands simply doesn't make. The Netherlands has a great trade system, good infrastructure. They're able to get those products into the country, get them to the farmers fast. Farmers make good use of them. They ship products out. And it's things people need. Meat, cheese, milk, yogurt, vegetables, fruit. I mean, the Dutch greenhouse system is growing oranges in November for Europeans. This is an incredible feat of engineering. Now, you can talk about however long you want, however, why the, why the Dutch government has decided they want to abandon this cash cow. But they're not self-reliant, and I don't think that they want to be. Their argument is that, you know, I think Ava's bearing the lead. Most of these guys just think it's, it's kind of insulting that the Dutch government wants to take their land away to build a giant YMCA for, like, you know, Senegalese immigrants. Like, that's what this really is about. It's I, I mean, about. The, the, it's getting mixed up, and everybody's grievance <laughs> is being thrown into you know, whatever protest is going on. But I, I thought it was kicked off by sort of like what happened in Sri Lanka, where they were trying to ban uh, the Haber-Bosch process produced fertilizers, and they didn't like the fact that they were using well, natural the Dutch gas. Government, the Dutch government claimed that that was one of the reasons, but they were also talking about reducing the emissions and the consumption patterns of meat and dairy to achieve certain environmental goals. They were very open about it. So they were very open about changing Dutch way of life. And for whatever reason, making less money for Dutch people trading goods, which is 
kind of paradoxical in, in a merchant country. The Netherlands doesn't, you know, really make a lot. They're, they're sort of merchants. So uh, I would say agriculture is probably their biggest thing that they actually produce. ASML. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, other than that, other than that, yeah. Um, Philips Electronics, which is not doing too well, but yeah, they 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 are doing Phillips okay for. Dead? I thought Philips kind, kind of, kind of. I think they sold off basically their yeah. their branding rights. Is that uh, one of those like they, they license equity? their brands? Is that one of those private equity casualties? Uh, no, I just think they they failed to compete. I I, okay. I don't think a private equity company caused their demise. I just don't think they could keep up. I mean, I think mainly it was. Um, the Asian Asian competitors, sort of same thing that happened to the American. Oh yeah, well that's America. what happened to Kodak. Sure, absolutely got schwacked by by the Japanese with their cheap Japanese cameras. and Japanese, Koreans, Chinese. I mean, it, yeah. it's just hard to compete with people who all they do is work and study, <laughs> you know, and copy. It's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to compete copy with that. Paste, yeah, exactly. They do it very quickly. Um, but yeah, the the Dutch that that was an interesting discussion on the Netherlands. Um, Let's well, get back right, to the topic at hand. Well, right across the water, I, I thought it'd be kind of funny Ava. To talk. Ava, if you're listening to this, we, we everyone thinks yeah. you're hot. You, you're just you're kind of an airhead. So uh, <laughs> just stick to promoting actually the Dutch farmers. Yeah, I won't. I won't say it, but yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Um, thank thanks for doing what you do. Keep it up. Um, just yeah, think think a little, a little bit more, perhaps. Um, but I was going to say, right across the water uh, of the Netherlands is the British, and what's interesting about them, among probably a lot of things, is uh, well, they're an island, and what made the British Empire happen? A lot of things, but clearly the access to the ocean and the skill of sailing it was instrumental. And that's, that's obviously a technology of transportation that they mastered and they were excellent at it. Some of the best seafaring peoples in history. The British Navy was unchallenged for probably a century or two after they finished off the uh, French and Spanish, they managed to build their empire on that. So why does that matter? Well, one of the one of the other advantages the British had, and in in this in this geography of transport systems book, um, whenever there's a mention of some first, you know, one of the first steamships engines, or one of the first, you know, some of the first internal waterways, some of the first railroad systems, some of the first commercial airliners. Uh, well, there's always the United States, and around the same time, there's often a British variant. Some cases before the American variant, some cases right after the fact. Um, you know, the British, much to their credit, uh, had the sort of same you know, industrial progression as the United States in many ways, probably until the 1940s, which is maybe beforehand, realistically. But the 40s is definitely where it just imploded for Britain. Everything fell apart forever. Uh but you could argue World War One was yeah, kind of the beginning of the end. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. Um, they had incredible inland waterways. The British were digging massive internal canals. They understood the utility of canals for a very long time. Part of 
Britain's challenge is that its internal rivers didn't quite flow precisely the way that they wanted them to. And if you could get those rivers to flow just right, you could move products from the industrializing north and the agricultural midlands to the south, and you could export them very, very rapidly into uh, European markets and to the American markets. But the goal was, you know, for a long time was the European market. When railroads became very popular, both the United States and Britain had a similar trend. The inland waterways, the canal lock systems were slowly abandoned. Railroads were just far more popular. Um, you could do more with railroads. You could interconnect them more easily. Dredging canals is awful. It's awful, really challenging work. It still sucks today. Um, people don't like doing it. it. It's simply not rewarding. And for a long time— What do you mean not rewarding? You have to do it. You have to You have to dredge harbors constantly. I'm talking about inland canals. Like a harbor oh. is different. Yeah, harbor. You have to. Yeah, you have to dredge harbors. You, like you won't trade with any other country. But inland, <laughs> yeah. inland, yeah. inland canals, or inland waterways and canals, canal lock systems on existing rivers. Those are terrible to dredge, and they're often in really, really difficult locations. The geography of the the outlying area or the nearby area is not easy to work with. Often you're working inside deep cut valleys. This is, or working in swamp-like territory along the Mississippi Delta. This is extremely difficult work, and it's always been difficult. Um, and this is part of the reason why railroads became so numerous. For there was a time, and Britain and the United States paralleled each other perfectly um, on, on the same timeline, where the investment in railroads was so extreme. Um, and the, you know the first like steam powered rail car systems that were carrying coal in the United States and carrying coal in Britain basically at the exact same time were basically you know subsidized by the state governments um, through various grants and things like that. Uh, so we were already doing infrastructure subsidies 200 years ago, and they just couldn't compete. I mean you know this is around the time the Erie Canal was being finished. They're already trying to get rail systems working. Um, super expensive. Everyone, the, you know, the impression of everyone at the time in both Britain and the United States was these will never pay off. It's like you know, it you know, it's like how utility uh, utility companies view nuclear energy. Like, oh my God, thirty year investment, huge margin of risk, uh, really complicated. You got to be kidding me. Like, I don't want to get involved. With that. Yeah, Jane Fonda is going to shut me down in five years anyway. So what's the point? Right. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's that same, it was that same mindset. Now, as with a lot of things, especially in infrastructure and engineering, uh, the costs will come down the more, the more you work on it, the more expand it. And that eventually became true with railroads. Eventually, railroads became cheaper to build and cheaper to expand and easier to expand than inland waterways and canals. And inland waterways and canals erode faster it's more difficult to maintain them than to build new ones, but you can't easily build new ones without interlocking them with the old ones. Otherwise, you're then leaving chunks of your transport system defunct. So what are people going to do? Pick up and just move to the new city you know, or new industrial area? This is, you know, today maybe possible. 
at the time, unthinkable. Why would you do that? That's ridiculous. You're just going to create havoc and nobody's going to pay for it. No private investor is going to pony up. So eventually, railroads became the preferred method of transportation. Britain did exceedingly well, like the United States, at building out its railroad system. Huge amount of novel innovations in railroad technology and in railroad engines and in you know, reducing freight costs and interlocking all these complex lattices of, you know, privately owned railroads and larger company railroads and being able to get from any destination move any kind of cargo, you know, this was like why Britain did so well. This is why the United States did so well. Well, if, if we want to go into this, I'd like to, I think, you're really talking about kind of the robber baron industrialization era of the West. Well, some and of this predates the I think robber barons. I mean, the canals, yes. The railroads, I think, are are sort of a thing unto themselves. And before we kind of loop backwards too much, I, I wanted to at least spend a little bit of time talking about the sailing ships and then, yeah, sure, yeah, um, just what what was so groundbreaking about that i mean first of all what what where are we we're in a part of the world that wasn't even known about until the sailing vessel actually became a real thing and the navigation also uh enabled by smart people who understood how star patterns actually can give you a clue as to where the hell you are because you know when you're on the water uh guess what there's no landmarks literally uh, so you have to use something to figure out where the hell you are and you can't just use the sun cause you don't necessarily, it's not, not there at night. And then you, you might have clouds. And if you go off course, the sun is really just one point of information in order to figure things out. You have to usually have three points triangulation. So the star charts and all the nautical technologies that were developed around that are pretty impressive. And seafaring peoples usually also have to have a ability to build boats and ships, obviously, and then build them in a way that they don't fall apart and then build them economically. And one of the struggles Britain had, uh, which kind of, promoted the growth of their empire was they cut down all the trees to build these these ships they, they had to use a very special type of wood that would not uh, bulge and crack and cause problems when it was thrown in the water and they would also still have to have tons of uh 10-year-olds running around you know in, in the in the holds of the ship patching these things with tar constantly but they they figured it out and but it's an island they don't have a lot of access to to forest and so one of the great things about discovering the new world was they could actually build these ships to the scale at which they wanted to build them because of all that un unmolested forest that they found in new england and so I think what's interesting also, not just about the, the British, but, you know, the Spanish, uh, the Spanish had a, a fantastic empire for 400 years based on this stuff. I mean, it's, it's astonishing how long that thing lasted. 
and the Spanish galleon was was considered one of the most formidable vessels on the seas. And um, I think it's fascinating the age of exploration, you know, that was sort of preceding the steam engine. They had to use these massive uh, masts that would catch the wind, and then if you if you didn't have wind, you know, you, you're pretty much screwed. But if you had a little bit, again, it gets, if anybody's ever sailed, um, it's kind of interesting. The, the tacking is, is is technique where you actually can almost go, you can't go completely against the wind. You, you can't, you can't do a 180 on the wind with a sailing ship. That makes no sense. The wind will push you backwards. But what you can do is if you're at a slight angle and then you angle your sail and then your your rudder, you can actually cut into the wind and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's uh, it's pretty cool how it works. So people had to figure that out. And why are we going onto the water? I mean, we could still die, you know, so there must be a reason. Well, there's natural resources, there's gold, there's uh, access to slaves, there's plantation land, there's all this stuff that you can get if you figure out how to do transportation right. I think it's just a fascinating era. And a lot of, uh, a lot of like good history and, and stories, Moby Dick, um, if you've ever seen Master and Commander, that's a pretty cool movie about uh, the, the, the sort of warfare that happened on the ocean uh, and how, how cunning you had to be really. Um, it, it wasn't, Again, it's like you're you're in a place that is not your natural environment. It will kill you. You can't dr- even drink the the stupid water that you're on. So you have to bring it with you. And usually, what these um, these vessels did was they actually brought beer because the uh, the water would actually get contaminated. And the one good one of the good things about and th- this goes back a little bit further into the sort of Roman times, but. A lot of people think that the uh, the reason Northern Europe, the sort of far reaches of the Roman Empire and beyond, were were a beer drinking people as opposed to like a wine drinking people was well, you couldn't grow grapes too well other than maybe Riesling or something, which probably happened later. But they didn't have aqueducts, and so beer was actually a way to not get sick from drinking water because it has enough um, toxins in it, basically, from the, the, the aftermath of the bacteria and the yeast, and whatever yeast is. I, I always mix up if it's fungus or, or bacteria, but um, yeast, basically. Alcohol is the byproduct of yeast consuming its food supply. And that stuff gets to a point where it actually um, causes problems even for the yeast, but other uh, pathogens don't like it. So they, they don't inhibit and and inhabit, I should say that, that, that liquid, which is mostly water. So you can drink it. And if if you're acclimated to it, it's fine. So a lot of these vessels had a lot of beer on them, um, which is interesting. And I probably, the Spanish probably brought wine. I don't know, but I know that the British were pretty big beer carriers. Um, so anyway, I'm just, I'm just sort of going around here on, on different, different things that i I know randomly, but I thought that was just such an interesting era where it took months to sort of get to these places. And you, you were on these really inhospitable places that, you know, like 
we evolved with legs. We didn't evolve fins. And so if you're, if you're walking down the road, okay, congratulations. But a three-year-old can do that. Um, if you're going onto the ocean, you got to be clever. And I think that's, you know, to the, the British and any seafaring people's, especially back then's credit that they were able to master this. Um, and just such an interesting era to me. Do you have anything to say before we go, go beyond that? No, I think you said it. You said it very succinctly, my friend. Well, yeah. And, and just the, I don't know. I mean, I, I, we're obviously not Asian, but I mean, the, the Chinese <laughs> have, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, Actually, it, it's, Adam, it, I've been meaning to tell you after uh-oh. all these years, I, I have some bad news. <laughs> well, unless you've got a potty double, I've met you in person. So <laughs> don't think what you're about to say is true, but no, in any case, like, um, like a mission impossible mask I've been wearing. It's, uh, <laughs> just rip it off and you're going to see like, you know, like young Jackie Chan underneath. Yeah. Well, they're cool, but the, the, the there <laughs> has been a, um, I like Jackie, but there, there has been a longstanding, like open question as to why, it was Europeans that actually set out on the ocean as opposed to anybody else. And nobody else really did it. Yeah. The Chinese, they had their junks. Well, the, you but, know, the primary, the primary reason that the Europeans set on the ocean in the Atlantic was to find a trade route to India. I mean, you know, that's, no, no, that, the, that, that's okay. Yeah, that's true. Here, here's, here's why, that's the Atlantic, here's why right, they yeah. thought they could, they could do that and they needed to do that. There was a land route to India, and it was possible to get to India. But who did you have to go through to get to India? A lot, a lot of people. You had to go through the Ottomans. Yep. You had to go through Persian dynasties. Mm-hmm. You had to go through the Hindu Kush. And then you had to traipse your way into India proper, which is huge, bigger than you realize, densely populated, poorly controlled, not well-maintained. You don't really want to deal with all that. You just want to go to India's ports. You want to get what you want. And you well, want you can also sail around Africa, but it's it's a lot more annoying. And they had done that, but and it they was... They had done that, and yeah. it, was, it, was, it was cumbersome, and it was costly, and it didn't always work, and it took forever. So the idea was, okay, we don't really want to deal with you know Muslim warlords, which is an under-discussed part of the desire to find an alternative route to the, you know, to the East was that the Europeans had grown tired of paying, you know, basically transport fees, overland transport fees to poorly maintained infrastructure run by Muslim warlords, which is what the Ottomans and the Persian dynasties were. These are not, yeah, they're, they're toll collectors, basically. They were toll collectors and they weren't even particularly good at it. And so what, 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 like, what is the point? I think, you know, by late 15th century Europe, they had effectively exceeded these places for the most part at a civilizational level. And so the idea of having to deal with them any further. Well, I mean, let's not forget the Spanish in particular hated the Muslims because they just fought this gigantic war to get the Moors out of Spain. And so they actually, 1492 was the same year they funded uh, or maybe they funded Christopher Columbus the year before, but I mean that was the year he found uh, Hispaniola, I think, was the island. But it was basically he thought it was you know in India, 
that was wrong, but he, uh, he found the Caribbean. That's where he went. So, and that was part of North America, what we call it today. So <clears throat> that time though, I mean, Southern Europe was under siege like for centuries. I mean, Malta had like uh, oh, yeah. Viking mercenaries like fighting these like Muslims off who were like trying to scale the walls. I mean, it's just it was bad. So yeah, if they so can get away of, from these people, the, this is more an power undiscussed to element too in this entire textbook we've read. <laughs> um, the, so by the way, this book that we're mostly referencing from Geography of Transversism is basically a textbook. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's, a, it's a good read if you guys want to read it. I recommend it as far as textbooks go, but it's like a college or grad school textbook. It's not like a novel. You know, it's no. not, it's not very sexy. No. No. Um, but one of the things this this entire novel like leaves out is the like talking about the intricacies and different kinds of supply chains and different kinds of transport systems and how they work, the problems with them. It's like, you know, war <laughs> just like never, it never factors in at well, all. It's a modern text that yes, is, is yes, designed yes, for the era yeah. of globalization, which Correct, yeah. I think we can get into, but I think it, it completely misses the backstory on this and like the meaning of it because right. it's, it's just, I don't know, like I, people who, again, it's an example of specialization. They sit in, in, a, in an office all day and they think about these abstract things and draw like, you know, network graphs on their, on their blackboard. Right. And it's yeah. like, well, okay, nobody did that for <laughs> ever <laughs> until also, we, we had, also, you know, all this like lighting, artificial lighting and, and, you know, engineering to build buildings like this. I mean, it's, it's, they're basically trying to backwards retcon what we invented and then make a, a textbook out of it. And so that's what, kind of why I didn't want to use their format because it's sort of artificial, but go ahead. Well, yeah, so there, there's two. Well, you know, broadly what it leaves out in discussion on transport systems is the human element. And the human element can mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So the human element can mean, you know, war, which I think if you put yourself in the mind of anybody before um, 1995, I think uh, – you'd have to account for some level of potentially violence occurring in your transport system and you know, how do you deal with that and, and so forth. Uh, secondarily, the human element being something like um, bureaucratic malaise or trade disputes or you know, sort of um, petty government score settling or anything like that. So an example, uh, when the United States was enmeshed in its trade war with Japan in the 80s. Um, there was something that the Japanese would do uh, to a lot of American imports. Um, they would either purposefully send them to the wrong port, or they would then be turned around and then turned back again and turned around. Uh, or sometimes they would take the container, they would go through the items, they would say, Hmm, we have to inspect this. We need to make sure that it's not counterfeit. So they would inspect light bulbs and cut each light bulb in half to see if any of the light bulbs were counterfeit. Well, you can't really use a light bulb now. So, oops, oh, well, you know, you can't sell this product now. It's, it's broken. We don't claim the damages. This is just one example, but here's another example. The infamous uh, Chris Christie Bridgegate phenomena where Chris Christie and his like Jewish lackey 
uh, with I can't remember his name, some absurdly like over the top Jewish name, um, basically conducted an operation to halt traffic through the bridge authority on the George Washington Bridge. I vaguely remember this. And yeah. so, you know, you don't things like that where you basically create a three day traffic jam and they estimated there was like hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity that was disrupted is not taken into account. Another recent example would be the still ongoing problems with the Port of Long Beach in Los Angeles. Um, labor disputes, contract disputes, uh, you know, a lot of the workers there just not exactly the best. Um, rotting and rusting internal infrastructure at the port that slows down operations, all this sort of thing. So uh, the book really fails. It was just, you know, after, after having read it, brought up some of the, you know, why did the Europeans leave and war? Uh, this is something the book really leaves out is probably something we'll have to deal with again, which is my, my wider prediction that supply chains will become much more interesting to manage as they become more, uh, more violent and disruptive. I, I think the book is good, but it assumes a lot. It, it assumes yes. obviously we're living in an era without pirates, without uh, corruption, without any of the actual practical problems that right, yeah. we face. And it assumes it takes for granted, basically a lot of the stuff that has been worked out in civilized countries that are unfortunately some of which are rapidly decivilizing, but the, um, the book is okay. It's just, you have to take it in context and I think I'd like to get to it later, but I think it's, it's, it's just, it's just too glossy. It's, it's, it's not realistic in terms of actually understanding the history yeah. of this stuff, which is mainly what we focus on is kind of how do we get here? Why is it important? Um, all right. So we, so we, thanks for doing the sailing stuff with me. Um, I actually have only been sailing maybe twice in my life, but, um, uh, and I, I don't recommend it if you're afraid of water, which we have no natural business being on, by the way, because I've had some bad experiences on it. But uh, interesting stuff. Um, so what what happened after that era? I mean, it was a long time before anything else really came about. And even when the steamship was around, that, that was around really until the airplane. But um, I think what what's I think worth talking about now is the railroad. Um, that technology really fit hand in glove with the industrial revolution and and you could say the canals did too at, at the earlier end of them uh, of the of the industrialization of britain uh continental europe and other other places but i think they were very quickly superseded by the railroad um for reasons like you mentioned you know the difficulty of well frankly just cutting these canals uh a lot of work involved as opposed to just putting something on top of the land. The, the bigger cost was even, you know, according to the book and, uh, in the book we read, um, the visible hand, uh, hmm. is upkeep canal mm -hmm. upkeep costs. Dredging. Are, are, yeah. They're insane. I mean, dealing with erosion mm -hmm. is, on these large river systems is, is, well, that's, that's, that's not a canal. That's a river. But you're feeding in water from okay. the river. I mean, still, it's it's insane. The amount of work you have to do to upkeep a canal, uh, even in the modern era, yeah. is it's pretty extreme. Yeah, what canals really do we still use? I mean, obviously, 
the uh, basically very few. We the ones still, that we so, have to. It's yeah, like, the ones that get we ships have to. through. So big there's ones. still barges that use the Ohio. There's still barges. I mean, so the Mississippi is still used pretty heavily. Yeah. But those are like not full canals. Those have canal locking systems in place to help control water flow right. and to help ships around. Um, there is that one canal near Chicago that I think is still in use for the Chicago um, river. Yeah. The, there's yeah. one. They actually like, had to reverse the flow, I think, uh, or they, they had to like connect. They made a canal basically that connects the great lakes to the Mississippi system. Yeah. That's yeah. what it was. And you just, it's it, it just, it's a no brainer. I mean, you've got this massive like inland waterway, Right. And then this massive ocean of fresh water that's uh, a mile away. Well, uh, it'd be pretty good if we connected those. I think that makes sense. And obviously the Suez Canal, you need that uh, unless you want to go around Africa for a couple of weeks. I mean, it's, it's it, that's another no brainer, but when it comes to, um, all right, we've got a, we've got a field, a uh, hundred miles of like flat land uh, you want to dig a trench or do you want to just put some metal down and run a train on it? I mean, it's just, it's just cheaper to do a railroad. Um, a hundred mile trench is pretty friggin' hard. So, yeah. Um, I want to say Erie. I mean, Erie's still in use, but it's like a tourist destination. I don't really think that it's mm, in, mm-hmm. you know, assisting in industrial trade anymore yeah i mean in 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 places where um i don't have the the statistics and canals but i do have for for shipping um if you're going over long distances typically the more uh involved the technology starts paying off so for example like if you have a railroad it it's cheaper to go rail if it's further than 750 miles uh, as opposed to truck. And then as opposed to rail, it's cheaper to go through shipping uh, like a container ship. Uh, It's cheaper only if it's 1500 miles or more. So in the case of a canal, they're sort of screwed because, well, the truck is pretty much going to be cheaper almost no matter what, unless I think you have, a gargantuan amount of bulk raw materials that you have to move that can't really be fit on a truck and it's just cheaper to load it all at once. And it's maybe at a mine. I know that the, uh, it's not a canal, but I know that, um, at least when it was going full force, uh, a lot of the steel mills in the Midwest would take a lot of the, the ore from Minnesota. Um, I forget what that range is called, but that was the whole Edmund Fitzgerald fiasco. That was, that was basically a taconite iron ore vessel. And so things like that, I think exist probably where there's still coal mining. They probably put those on barges and send them down to, uh, coal power plants and stuff like that, or for export. But when it comes to grain shipments, I think a lot of that stuff is just through rail, and there's probably a little bit of that um, on barges as well, but it's just it's just hard to compete. You know, I think I think again, it's like the economics kind of determine how this stuff is actually decided upon. Um, you know, you can do it. I mean, if you're you know the dictator, you could you can make your country full of canals, but you're gonna you're gonna miss out on your um, your economic wealth because you're misallocating your resources basically. So 
you know, in a capitalist system, people are pretty stingy in terms of what they shell out. And so typically they're going to pick the most efficient way to move stuff, at least in this context uh, of, of movement. Um, and they're going to pick the cheapest way no matter what. So I think that's probably why the stuff fell apart. It's just, it's just too expensive. But the rail, I mean, the rail isn't the best system necessarily either because, well, uh, there, there's a pretty good series that I, I did watch, uh, and it was um, fictional, but it was based on sort of the, the true story of the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad across the United States. And this actually happened, um, uh, the series was called uh, Hell on Wheels, and it was based um, on that, that true story of how that railroad was built uh, from connecting the east, eastern coast with the western coast of the United States. And it happened after the Civil War. And part of the challenge of that was it was obviously uniting the country in the background during all this stuff. But also, they were going through contested territory with American Indians. And a lot of the construction crews, who some of which were freedmen, you know, former slaves, a lot of them were Southerners, some of them were immigrants from Ireland. It was a it was a mess, like managing this thing, and then they were getting shot by Indians. So it's a massive construction project. It's not just like you, know, you put some dirt down. I mean, you can destroy a rail, not that with not a lot of difficulty, and then it takes a lot of work to fix it, as opposed to a road where okay, I guess you could. I don't know, put a boulder or roll some rocks in front of it. But I mean, it's, it's a basic system. So how do you actually ruin it unless you've got, you know, technology that didn't exist back then? How do you block a road? You have to put like logs or something, uh, but you could, you can move those out of the way and then you're, you're back, back in action, a railroad. It's a piece of engineering. And so you actually have to patrol this thing, build it. And then part of the, uh, the challenge of building the railroad, at least in that context was, cutting through these mountains in the West. It was just massively difficult. I mean, once you get past the the challenge of the Plains Indians and you get up into the mountains, which also has different tribes, but the big issue is the weather. Um, it's cutting a grade that actually works for a train because uh, obviously, but I think it's worth mentioning, a train is heavy. And so in order to climb a giant mountain, you have to, you have to go at a rate at which the train can get up and tra trains are funny because the locomotives, they, I've always, as a kid, I thought it was weird, but because of the massive weight and the fact that on a microscopic level, the molecules of what appears to be smooth steel actually still has friction on it. The weight plus the, the, the microscopic porosity of these things compressing down on the rails they're, they're those those locomotives can grab those those steel rails and pull themselves forward but obviously they're not going to go vertical and there's a point at which they can start climbing but if they've got a lot of load behind them it's really tough and so the the challenge of cutting these routes was not only did you have to fend off you know all these problems the weather the the natives the getting the resources, getting the workers to cooperate and, and figuring all that out. You had to think very carefully about your route because once you get going, 
it's it's kind of hard to to change course with such a complex operation. So they had a lot of scouts that would go out and they would they would look at, you know, various valleys and typically rivers were, were your kind of ticket to going over mountains because the rivers kind of had done the work for you. They they had kind of cut cut a path unless obviously you have a waterfall, but typically rivers are sort of flat and you can kind of follow along the edge of them. And if you look at how railroads are constructed historically, they're typically along rivers and mountains. Um, so that's what they usually would do. But at a certain point, sometimes they couldn't, they couldn't figure it out. So they'd have to build a bridge, which was hard, uh, especially with, you know, primitive cranes and, not really a steel plant ready to go to build these massive girders. So you'd have to build a lot of railroad bridges are built out of timber. And so you'd have to figure out where the forest is, have a pack of horses to, to haul these massive timbers up and then build it in a way that it, it doesn't fall down and pile down the, the foundation so that it doesn't collapse. And a lot of them did by the way, cause they'd screw it up cause it was a really hard problem. Um, and then the the big thing, and and this is demonstrated in that show, was was dynamite. Uh, and I think they specifically it was like nitroglycerin. But I mean, a lot of people forget Nobel Prize actually was from a guy named Alfred Nobel from Sweden who invented that stuff. And he felt so guilty for the usage of it during warfare that he, or at least he was ashamed of his reputation at least from that that he created this Nobel Prize. But that was a huge huge deal because instead of staring at a giant uh, wall of rock and trying to cut a tunnel in it with, uh, with your hands, sometimes these tunnels are like miles long. Um, you would just put some, uh, explosives on it and probably cut the construction time down by a factor of 10 or more, probably more than that. I, I don't know what the numbers are, but it was just a massively important technology to getting that done. And so, it's just a, it's just a logistical challenge to get this done, and so it took it took the the willpower of a kind of broken nation that was trying to figure out maybe something that could unite it again, and an industrializing nation that also had sort of this philosophical belief that it it was destined to combine the coast together in this kind of like landmass and, and empire. Uh, as it were into one. And I think the railroad was instrumental in doing that because prior to that, the settlers had to go on these uh, oxen trains that were slow and slower than the weather basically. And you wound up with people, you know, like the Donners who got stuck in the Sierras in the winter and ended up having to eat each other because uh, they couldn't move again. The, the stuff we take for granted, it's pretty crazy. And actually the railroad construction in that part of California is really fascinating because the, um, literally at Donner Lake, there is a, a rail line that runs through those series of, uh, passes and it is solid rock granite. And you could just imagine back in the day and at that part of the construction, they had Chinese immigrants doing it, but they were blasting the crap out of this stuff and just cutting these, these holes in the, in the sides of these mountains and massive, massive engineering challenge. So railroads are awesome, but not trivial. 
And it took a long time before we were able to do something like that and that it made some sense. But you also had to have the industrial capability to produce the rails. And the original rail system was built on iron and as opposed to steel. And a lot of them broke quickly and bent and bent out of shape. And because steel is uh, basically the combination of iron with carbon and certain other alloying metals that give the uh, the alloy a superior set of properties. And uh, the Iron Age was really kind of probably a misnomer. It probably should be called the Steel Age, perhaps. I don't know if uh, the types of steel back when they were making swords was really the same type of steel that, you know, rail has I'm almost certain it was different, but um, the iron age is kind of implies that people were just running around with iron. I mean, at a certain point they were, but steel was really kind of the, the big deal because it was just much stronger, much less prone to um, being ductile, which means like it, it, it bends. And, uh, and Carnegie was, was the guy who basically, enabled the build out of the railroads. He was the big steel magnate that eventually um, Carnegie steel became U S steel when JP Morgan bought him out. But he, he uh, was actually, I think a Scottish immigrant and he set up operations in Pennsylvania predominantly and and made Pittsburgh what it is Um, just this big steel town. And cause there's a lot of um, the the reason it, it occurred there. I'm pretty sure is because of the, metallurgical coal in Pennsylvania. It wasn't because it was like a logistical hub. I mean, it's in the, if you look at Pittsburgh, it's like in this weird Valley, uh, in the middle of a mountain range, it's not a great place to set up a factory per se, but it's, uh, it's where the resources are. So that's how that happened. But, um, but you couldn't do railroads without steel and, and you know, where else were railroads a big deal? I mean, it was in Britain and Britain had the industrial revolution and they had a lot of coal and, I guess enough iron ore to make that possible. But if you didn't, you know, you didn't have railroads. So all these things come together and it's sort of interesting how, how this, this happens. But again, looking at an academic text, it just sort of assumes like you could just like, Oh, if I learn chapter nine, like I'll figure out how to do a railroad. Well, historically it didn't matter. <laughs> you had to have the resources, you had to have the geography and that's actually the title of the book, geography of transport systems. So I think, sort of ironically, they, they kind of miss the geographical significance of, I think, a lot of the history. I mean, they, they, they do okay, but I think, I think they missed a few things. So anyway, um, would you, do you have anything to say about the railroads, um, Hans? Not particularly. I think you, you said it well. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about, uh, uh, Containerization. I know well, I, I think that that, that like. era is sort of more recent, and I think yeah. you know the automotive uh, era, nineteen twenties, really was when this was kind the, of getting going, and the Ford era of America. Yeah, I think, yeah. and becoming you know very quickly the world. I mean, it was the mass production of the automobile. I think really changed it was a game changer just like the railroad was where the railroad had probably honestly not even that long it was probably no more than 100 years whereas the sailing ship had good 600 600 years the railroad was surpassed pretty quickly by the 
by the automotive era. And that was enabled by, frankly, just the, well, there's a lot of things that were, that made it possible, uh, that were necessary. But I think the, the, the forward model of mass production, getting the cost down to the point where you could produce these things at scale at a reasonable price enabled people to move things without the shackles of the robber barons, which were, you know, if you play that board game monopoly, I mean, what is the, one of the big things in that game? Like, well, if you own a railroad, you know, you're, you're powerful, right? Why? Well, it's because it's hard to build these things as we just went over. And so if you've got them, you're, you're a toll, you're a tollman, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a lock, a choke point on a really critical need for people to move goods, services, food, things back and forth. So it was great when people could be like, screw you, Vanderbilt. I'm going to just drive down the road. I don't need to pay your fees. And that was a big deal. And obviously the appeal is obvious. So, but that wasn't possible until people like Henry Ford were able to master the mass production systems. Uh, Also, the technology didn't really exist to put a power plant in a very small space like a car um, and not have this massive steam locomotive that had literally an engineer required to figure out how to, I mean, by the way, steam power, they actually built um, cars with steam locomotion. Uh, there's a, there's a very famous one called the Stanley steamer that Jay Leno actually uh, recreated. Uh, but the steam car was a pain in the, but because you had to fill it up with water to make the steam and then you'd have to, uh, and they actually would use, um, it's funny. They would use, I think, uh, horse troughs <laughs> to fill these up and then you have to, you know, get the coal and, and then also make sure it doesn't blow up. I mean, steams are, steam engines are extremely dangerous. There's a, there's pictures on, on the internet you can find of, uh, locomotives blowing up, boilers blowing up, people being mangled and murdered and killed by these things exploding, because steam under pressure is super powerful. It's part of what made it so appealing is because you could you could uh, tap this stuff by burning something and produce a lot of power and and enabled the industrial revolution, but putting it in a on a a massive scale where each individual is responsible for a steam engine, it's not going to work. So the internal combustion engine was a necessary technology that enabled the car. And a lot of people think it was some like weird conspiracy theory with Rockefeller to like not use batteries back then. Cause actually one of the first technologies I believe Ford was considering was, uh, was batteries as opposed to the internal combustion engine. But as we've probably talked about a, a couple times on the show, at least, uh, batteries back then sucked and you couldn't go very far and they were heavy, uh, you probably would ruin them if you tried to actually use them on a daily basis. So lead, lead acid batteries are good for starting cars, but they don't have enough energy density to get you anywhere. It's about one to 40, I think in terms of the energy density of a lead acid battery versus gasoline. Um, you just, you have much more punching power with a tank of gas. And it also ha- so it just so happened that there was this guy named Rockefeller and a few others that, had found a whole bunch of this stuff uh, that was actually, you know, oil, and then they had refined it into petroleum products. But the the cost of that was going down because of the industrialization of everything. 
and that enabled the car. And then that really exploded the popularity of moving things by, by cars. However, one of the missing links was good roads because, well, we don't really need a big road network. I mean, we're just going to town once in a while and then we get everything else off of rails. So the roads back then sucked. And if you look at the model T, you know, old grainy footage of these things or or photographs, you'll see that they've got these skinny little wood wheels or metal wheels, uh, with rubber on them. And they would be on these dusty, crappy roads in these like farm areas of the country. And okay. You're going 15, 20 miles an hour, not a huge deal, I guess. I mean, people didn't expect people to get there that quickly back then, but it was a big issue because you would run into these dirt roads and just fall into ruts and then break your wheels and the axles would snap. And the road development was also a thing that was necessary, but that took a long time. And that really didn't take off, I think, until... 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s when the interstate highway system was, was going. Um, so, and then, then that, that kind of spread throughout the world. And then China really went crazy. And then they, I think they built a bigger highway system than the U.S. even at this point. Um, if we get to China, I mean, everybody knows like they're, they're, they blitzkrieg on infrastructure. Um, I think the statistic was uh, in three years in the 2010s, the uh, Chinese poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. So they're, they're, they're infrastructure happy over there, but why? I mean, it, a lot of it pays off. So, you know, good for them. I don't have anything else to say about the car. I mean, other than it was just an amazing freeing device that you didn't have to be stuck on these railroads. I guess we can finish that up or maybe go to containers, but Hans, what did you want to do? We can talk about containers. You know, it's a, a subject that you're interested in. Well, it was really not even a concept until, what was his name? Uh, McLennan or something like that. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a book called The Box, which is pretty good. Uh, I haven't read it, but a, a lot of people have talked about it, and it seems seems. It was good, originally but... a, a, like a Navy contract in order to help with the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I think that's right. It was, yeah. was the Sounds idea right. behind it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a good idea. It was basically like, okay, well, Ferengetti or what was that guy in uh, like San Francisco who was like, throw yourself on the gears of the machine and, and you know, here's a communist you know manifesto by the way. But it's like um, he was a dock worker and basically he was protesting. Uh, I don't know if they actually, I don't, I think this was before the container, but. Um, that era was like of the on the waterfront, um, Marlon Brando, Longshoreman. Okay, these guys actually are still around, but they just work at container terminals now. <laughs> but they used to actually do break bulk, which is a frigging slow ass process compared to what it is today. Yeah, the the, the economics of uh, even into the nineteen early nineteen sixties, you know, the economics of actually moving things off a ship and putting them on a ship took almost as long as the time on average the ship was on the ocean going from A to B. I mean, it was an art for larger ships with lots of cargo or complex cargo. It was an arduous, insane process. 
securing everything was a difficult process. You had to put it in the ship's hull. It, it was basically, uh, you know, a week's worth of work to unload a big ship. It was it was insane. Um, and people just, you know, what this does is it effectively uh, prevents a lot of international trade. The That's margins right. yeah. the margins aren't very high. It's too expensive to ship. It's too expensive and you know, it's too costly. That that's basically it. So why do it? Um with the container and some of these larger transport ships that you know coincided with it, you know, they had to basically rethink shipbuilding. Well, to yeah, to, to, to give sort of a, a word picture to borrow a phrase I learned a long time ago, um, from news radio actually. Funny, funny show where Joe Rogan got to start. So full coming full circle. Um, the, um, the concept of like shipping was you'd have obviously these things that displaced water. Okay. Number one, uh, I won't go into the weeds of water displacement, but basically the hull of it, the bottom of it, you usually had to have enough weights that it wouldn't tip over, but there was enough space usually in there also, uh, that you could fit cargo and in order to get that stuff in there again going back in time it's like okay we didn't have like steel ships for a long time so these were made out of wood so in order to like keep the thing rigid and structurally sound you couldn't just have an open top you had to have like structural members like joist basically floor joist going between the walls of the vessel on both sides of the ship, the starboard and the port. And so you would have these little portholes where you could sort of cut openings that was permissible from a structural engineering standpoint that you would then have maybe a crane or a hoist or something that could then like drop one at a time, a couple of things into the hull, hold the ship. And it's slow. It's basically a bottleneck and you've got, also the problem of fitting everything in a compact efficient way and also by in a weight distribution pattern such that you don't topple the ship over because if you if you just do it sloppily and you put all your your cannonballs on one side and all your uh, i don't know your flowers from the netherlands on the other side i mean the thing's going to tip over so you have to think about that too so it's detailed work and you'd have these well, depending on the era, but at some point you had these guys that were unionized and called longshoremen and they would literally go up and down these cranes and, and into the hold of the ship and then fit everything so that it would be balanced and it would fit right. And it's because of the limitations of the ship designs so that you, you could only do it this way. But the container was, was genius because it was basically like, okay, all right, we figured out steel ships now. So we don't need these like decks that like cover everything at the top. We'll just get rid of that and we'll just make it open. And then we'll then put the ship next to a crane and the crane will literally pick up a container off of a train or a truck and drop it onto the hold and get it done in like a day or two as opposed to a week or more. And then you also don't have to have so many workers. That's why, you know, these dock workers were really upset, but you don't need them because it's already loaded. You don't have to waste time figuring out where the stupid shit's going to go. 
you just drop it in and then you're good. And what this enabled also was the economies of scale was like, well, all right, I only need one engine room. I only need one captain. So the bigger I make the ship, the more I can amortize those costs out. And also I'm going that way already. So if I can just get more containers, I don't have to make more trips. So you have like this massive, like gigantism logic that <laughs> it results in the Emma Maersk or whatever the biggest one is now. But for a while, that was the biggest ship ever from, uh, from Maersk, the, the Danish shipping line. And that thing is huge. And it, it was so big. I don't even know if it fit through the Panama canal until they like actually widened it. But it, it was like dwarfing the original uh, merchant Marine vessels like today's container ships uh, are probably bigger than aircraft carriers. I'm almost sure of that now that I think about it um, in terms of like weight and, and size. I think that they are, they're, they're just huge. And then in order to do that, you have these big cranes that have to be constructed as well that can pick these things up. But what, what's cool about the container also, it's not just the, the fact that it's faster at the ship it can be intermodal. In other words, it can go from a ship to a train and then get picked up off a train and even get put onto a truck. And that just eliminates even more back and forth of, you know, having workers break things down, put them in a new place. And then basically just having the guy at the next node of the network can carry on his way. Uh, You eliminate all that by just picking it up, putting it down. You're good. So, it made a lot of sense and it, it Hans is right. It, it enabled, well, the reverse of what he said was, which is basically you couldn't do it before. Now you can, you can globalize, you can put factories in China, 15,000 miles away and actually make it cheaper to make it there as opposed to making it in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's why part of the reason the rust belt was destroyed. It was basically, you know, the, the bankers are basically going to look for the, the cheapest cost. And so, that was a huge impact of this technology. Where do you want to take it from here, Adam? What would you, what would you like to talk about? Well, we talked about all the major technology. I guess we didn't talk about airplanes. Um, let, let's talk about airplanes for a second. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite topics, I guess not yours, but I mean, you know, air cargo, air freight is a thing. So you can think of it in terms of like, okay, we start off with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pontius uh, Pilatus, or I'm trying to think of a different Roman name, but like some some guy, uh, his his job is uh, packing something down the Roman road on his back or his horse. Okay, then we get to uh, let's put it on a ship. It's it's less energy you know required. We put a sail on it. You don't even need an animal anymore. Okay, then we get to a locomotive. Okay. We've got to get coal. We've got to build a railroad. All right. But that's pretty cool. All right. Now we got a car. Cool. And now we're going to make a container so it can go everywhere. All right. That's neat. Well, what's next? Actually, before the airplane, air cargo, and you know, people are actually trying to do this again. The airship was a thing for a little bit. Did you ever look into that, Hans? I didn't spend too much time looking into it. Are they really? I, so I feel like I've heard this, you know, 
intermittently the last two years. Is that really a thing again? Trying to bring back Zeppelin. I mean, or okay, something? there's there's like honestly, I think a lot of it is just engineers want like a, a cool problem to solve but yeah I, I guys think... can you can you please work on like the freight rail system or something <laughs> that's, that's you know useful i i i i'm gonna beat one of you up if i ever see no, i mean the, the theory is okay it's not bad because it's basically like the problem with an airplane is you need airports and you need to have a lot of fuel on these things and they have to move yes you yeah. can have helicopters too but those have problems. And so airships are, are neat because they're very, it's literally like it's a, it's a, it's a waterborne. It's the equivalent of a waterborne vessel literally in the atmosphere. That's literally what it is. It's displacing enough. Uh, it's floating on the atmosphere, just like a ship floats on the water. And what's cool about it is it's very efficient. Um, there's a there's a good video from uh, what the hell's his name? Uh, he's a physics guy. He does a lot of physics videos on YouTube. I forgot who he was, but um, he's like based out of LA. He's pretty popular, but uh, I'll probably remember it after the show or in a five minutes or something. But anyway, he he talked about this stuff, and it, from a physics standpoint, it makes sense to do it. It's efficient. It's 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 like you know you get a lot of distance for energy input. And he talked about some of the designs that are uh, involved. Um, but, and the appeal also is that you can go places where you don't have the infrastructure like an airport uh, to support. I mean, it's like mining, for example, in like the jungles of Indonesia. As weird and dumb as that sounds, you could actually do it a lot easier because jungle is a pain in the ass to cut through. Um, and you have to develop roads for that and you can't really develop a railroad for a mine. I mean, you could, but it's like, it's just, it's usually better to build a road, but th that's a huge undertaking. But if it's only like an ore deposit that is worth a couple million, the road is probably going to cost more than that. So you, it, it, it makes some sense, like kind of like literally like drop ship, like a mine camp and then have like a Zeppelin or something float over it, pick up what it needs and then come back. You can't have an airport for a stupid couple million bucks. I mean, it's going to cost way more than that. So there's these edge cases where it makes a ton of sense. And then maybe there's a couple of places where it would make some sense too, you know, over the ocean or something. But there are challenges to it. And I mean, obviously, one of the biggest mm -hmm. ones was the Hindenburg was using hydrogen, and that caught fire. And so uh, that's partly why it really kind of stopped um the airplane wasn't developed really when the very well when the hindenburg was a thing and so they were kind of and hindenburg was a, a nazi airship <laughs> maybe some people don't know that but it had floated across the atlantic and uh it i forgot where it burned up new jersey i think but um it was cool there was a cool era where like the empire state building had a had like a docking port for airships. Did you, did you know that? Um, yeah, there's, there was like, there's pictures of like these things like docking at the empire state building. I, don't know, I think it's, I think it's really neat, but that's um, mildly cool. You know, I, if, if we had 
if a lot of other things were going well, I would say, yeah, let's experiment with the Zeppelin idea. No, I'm not. I'm not uh, disagreeing with your like yeah, economic yeah. logic or the safety logic of the, the fact that the you know one of the only stuff. areas I've seen that they apparently have a lot of utility is weather monitoring, and that and that yeah. and some of the or or, or spying very badly over yes. the Midwest. Yeah. Well, no, there there are like modern zeppelin projects that are being developed for reconnaissance potentially military yeah. reconnaissance but for weather monitoring data gathering purposes and i think utilized for variety of civil purposes so mm-hmm. like the u.s forest service could be using them for sure. you know vast forest tracks for wildfires you could use them to monitor you know, um, yeah, I, I, I do wonder about that though. Cause like, I mean, at this point, satellites are pretty good, but obviously you can't deploy them satellites as like nimbly. Though. They are They're so expensive. De- you know, depends on is, what, what technology, but, but yeah, it is yeah. so expensive and every single government agency is fighting all the time for access to those satellites for one reason or another. And I, so I think the costs are going down a lot. I mean, SpaceX and you know, the microsat movement, they're still, stuff. Yeah, I mean, they've gone down, but, you know, it's still challenging to move a satellite over an area for real-time tracking of fires. Yes, like, real-time, it, it has challenges because it and, has to be in know, orbit, so it can't yeah, like, so go where it wants. The problem is that they try and use small fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters for, you know, fire reconnaissance, for example, or for right. natural disaster issues. You know, let's say you're... Um, dealing with a landslide or a mudslide. They still have monitor. lookouts, you know, which yeah. is interesting to me. Or, bet, you, know, you know, I think one of the utilities, quite honestly, I could see for the Zeppelins uh, will be uh, just monitoring urban zones, you know, after the next St. Floyd uh, <laughs> shoe pops off. No, really, you know, park one of those things over urban zone, insert here, and I don't know. You know I mean, okay. even even our sort of uh, disgruntled population can probably afford a rifle. I mean, it probably isn't that hard to shoot these things down. I, I, I they're pretty high up. I don't I don't think that like you know a store bought rifle is capable of dealing damage to one of those. That's a good I question. Just, I don't I don't know how high I would I would suspect go, but... not. I w- I would suspect not. And I suspect that'll be one of their primary utilities. It'll just be urban surveillance. <laughs> okay, you heard products. it here first. That's interesting. Um, well, I, 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 I'm not trying to skip over the airplane. I just wanted to no, mention no, no. Some, something kind of interesting that I learned about over the past, you know, few years, but also recently it's been coming up a lot. I thought it'd be kind of fun to jump into them. The, the one, one of the problems though, with airships, honestly, with cargo, especially is that if you're picking up a big load, it is different if you're like picking up a couple people, cause it doesn't really change the, 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 the buoyancy of the, the vessel. But if you're picking up a huge load of cargo and then dropping it somewhere you have a massive like differential between your your steady state so in other words if you're going to float down you know the the airship uh, highway um, you can't be like going into space or dropping into the ground you have to be level obviously so in order to do that you have to be buoyant at a certain altitude now in order to drop down and pick up cargo you have to lower your buoyancy and then to get back up there, you have to raise your buoyancy. How do you do that? You have to change the pressure dynamics in the blimp and that takes a lot of energy. (laughs) And then there's 
other people that say, well, okay, you can pick up like ballast, you know, cargo, you know, and basically just keep a steady, you know, amount. But this is one of the engineering problems of them. And there's not really a, a, a cheap solution. That's probably one of the reasons why they're not catching on too well. But I thought that was something interesting. Um, Veritasium. It's funny how my brain works. That was where I learned that. Um, that's the channel name on YouTube of this physics dude where he talked about that. Um, airplanes. Okay. So why did this, why did the blimp not really catch on? Um, it was superseded by the airplane. Why? Well, airplanes fast. That's kind of nice. Maneuverability. Maneuverable. It can go major. Yeah. It's part of speed, I guess, but it's, um, it's just faster. And you can also solve some of those like cargo problems too. If you're trying to send stuff, I mean, I, we're, we're sort of like assuming everything's about like cargo, but I mean, some of this is also for passengers as well. Um, and I think the airplane makes a ton of sense for, for passenger travel because as opposed to a, a product that you can send on a ship, you know, your, your next PlayStation 14, it doesn't have to get here like immediately. You can sort of plan around the Christmas seasons or whatever, but if you're jumping on a plane, um, you don't want to sit on a ship for two weeks like they used to. You'd rather fly for half a day, get across the ocean. That's pretty cool. So I think that's a huge advantage an airplane has over the blimp. I don't know what the average speed of a blimp is, but it's probably no more than, what, 40 miles an hour? I mean, it's, you know, they're pretty lumbering. So, uh, and I guess you can make them faster, but... <clears throat> I just don't know, but I, my impression is they're slow. So, um, airplanes can go, I mean, cruising speeds, I think for most passenger jets are in the 500s miles per hour range, something like that. Um, you know, there, some of them are near supersonic. I mean, they, they tried to make one at Boeing, but I think you're, you're basically pulling like, you know, Mach 0.6 probably for most passenger jets at cruising altitude. Um, Cessnas are slow. You're basically going to go about a hundred miles an hour. So you're not even getting that much advantage over a car. It's really just, um, you know, they're more for recreation, frankly, at this point, but back in the day, you know, roads were not as good and the passenger ships that went across like canard shipping and others going across from Britain to uh, New York, that took a long time. And it was a big deal. Like you had to like house these people, feed them, have sleeping quarters. The advantage of the airplane is you don't need any of that. I mean, you, you give them some crappy, you know, microwaved meal, but you don't need a two weeks of that. You don't need to, you don't need to have beds for everybody. So airplane makes a lot of sense. Um, Cargo, though, it's still kind of a niche because of the cost of, of air transportation. But there are well, areas... I don't know if it's a niche. I mean, cargo, air freight, it's like the, $6 the trillion dollars of cargo or something like that. I mean, yeah, but there's probably some double counting in there. Like, I, I don't know. I doubt that if you added up all the revenues of all the air transport, I doubt it's $6 trillion. That seems high to me. I mean, UPS is what... $80 billion company that includes ground transport. And then you got FedEx. It's mostly, well, it's more air cargo, but they got a fleet of what? hundred jets, 120. 
how how could it be six trillion? It just doesn't seem. I mean, but maybe I'm wrong. Where are you reading that from? Somewhere you got a source? I mean, like what? I mean, that's that? like the official. Okay. Uh, what is this? Hold on, I had to like look it up. Is this worldwide? The, I mean, yeah, this is worldwide. This isn't the United States. Okay. This is International Air Transport Association. Okay. So in the novel, it mentions a few figures around air freight, like how much cargo is conducted in air yeah. freight in the United States. The book's a little out of date. I'll bet you. And it's, there's it's some. So not there's more some than ten percent of the total, though. Yeah, some statistics that it it cites. It doesn't ever actually give like you know a rough valuation of how much is conducted, but. I mean, it's quite a lot. It's not not trivial amount of yeah. of, uh, of commerce conducted over air freight. Sure. One of the one of the big things with air freight is that it has enabled um, companies to do uh, things they never could have done before in terms of keeping warehouse and inventory costs low, but also being able to meet uh, you know rapid rises in demand. So whenever Apple, uh, I think until recently, Apple would run into this problem where they would always underestimate, uh, mm-hmm. always underestimate the demand um, for particularly new iPhones. That's partly by design because Part if you have excess design. inventory, you're screwed. And so it's exactly. probably exactly. smarter to so, lowball it and then just yeah. pay the extra to get your exact amount as opposed to having surplus inventory, which you then have to like, it, it damages the brand if you have too much. And then yeah, so one of Tim Cook's, you know, solutions to this problem before Jobs died and, and uh, it's what made Tim Cook a rising star at Apple Right. And and uh, and eventually landed him the CEO job. Um, he really pivoted the company towards air freight. And prior to him is coming in, Apple had a very low air freight presence. They didn't have a lot of existing contracts. They didn't have a lot of the insurance liability you know, ready to go. They just were not an air freight company. They were cargo container uh, primarily. Uh, Apple was still sort of in the transitory phase like many companies were. Uh, in the you know mid thousands of you know realizing that the the new tech you know the technology of the future is being made in Asia, so they had successfully transitioned to cargo containers, but this required Apple to keep huge amounts of inventory stateside, um, which is not something they wanted to do. They were losing a fortune on just housing inventory, and Apple historically, um, people forget. You know, Apple in the late 90s and even in times during the 2000s actually had products that did not go well, that uh, would not sell. Um, now, that's just not the case for Apple. But there were times when Apple would overestimate and just get killed, uh, you know, housing a bunch of crap. They a lot of their computers people. back then, PowerPC architecture, yeah. were just kind of getting crushed by Intel. and Right, yeah. right. So they, they just struggled. Um, even even the post PowerPC ones, even the ones with Intel, just sometimes just wouldn't sell. So Apple had um, a big problem, and when the iPhone sales were coming around, they knew this would be a tremendously difficult because um, they were betting big on the iPhone. But in the off chance that the iPhone didn't work out for Apple, um, they were going to be left holding the bag for potentially tens of millions of units. Not something they wanted. So Tim Cook devised a model, very rapidly put together an air freight uh, con- set of set of air freight contracts, and basically determined a way to very rapidly, basically within giving a call 
to the supplier, to Foxconn effectively, in Taiwan. Uh, listen, we need um, 30,000 new units. Well, it's a Taiwanese company. I think they manufacture it on China. It does. Okay, whatever. It's semantics. Like, they call up sort some of, guy. Sort of. It, they call up a Chinese It's becoming guy. relevant now, though, because Chinese and Americans are not getting along, and so they're moving a lot of that shit to India. Ruining my story. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to run you over with a car uh, next time I see you. Well, a blimp would be better, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so listen, they call up a guy, Tim Cook would say, look, I need 30,000 units stacked tomorrow. Can you do that? Yeah. We're going to load them up on the plane right now. Apple was able to meet these like sort of weird little spikes and surge demand they would see in random cities across the United States very, very rapidly. And their inventory costs like never fluctuated. They were able to get them into the store and sold by like end of week. They didn't get warehouse. They just sat in the back of the store and some, you know, in the various Apple stores in some city. And that was it. You know, this is like, this is what air freight has enabled. Air freight is particularly useful for consumer electronics, for surge demand, um, for, you know, uh, particularly products that are needed, uh, critical, uh, critical items that are needed at, uh, sort of critical path projects so let's say for example pharmaceuticals emergency like you know uh, yeah 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 donor donor organs emergency stuff like Um, that makes a lot of sense so let's say let's say you have um you know critical um computing infrastructure at a um water treatment facility you know a fully automated water treatment facility or nuclear plant and it breaks down, it gets hacked, um, you know, someone takes a baseball to it, or baseball bat to it, whatever, stuff happens, right? So you need to get whatever you need to get on it rapidly, and you need to ship it to uh, this location very, very quickly. Um, this is what air freight has enabled. You can be on the other side of the country, you can be on the other side of the world, and you can get you know, a highly critical path uh, product uh, to a you know, critical piece of industrial infrastructure or what have you uh, within 24 hours and you know, save potentially hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in the long run. If it's, you know, if it's that critical. Well, the, uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about <laughs> warfare, not a lot, but the I think the biggest fleet is the U.S. Air Force, like a, of any you know air airplane you know count. That's true. Yeah, and the U.S. Air Force has the like logistics, massive, massive freight capabilities. The US absolutely, Air Force can, like, it's actually yeah unmatched on yeah. really any dimension by any other country. I mean, yeah, Russia and China they got a lot of people. Well, China does obviously, and they got a lot of missiles, but they don't have the logistical capabilities of the United States military. And and one of those advantages is yes, the Navy, but also for rapid response, uh, air force is incredible. Uh, the C five galaxies, the, uh, globe masters, uh, C 17s, I think. And then the C one thirties and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's massive. And the entire, um, Gulf war, not the Iraq war, but the Gulf war was actually airlifted in like a month. And it just, you know, we don't need to go into it, but it, it, it's, if you, if you're curious, look into how crazy that was. 
They, they, they rolled tanks onto airplanes <laughs> and moved them to the battlefield. <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, you know, prior periods, it would take a year to get that shit ready. I mean, like Operation Barbarossa was probably in the works for a while. And that was on the land. You know, they didn't have to, you know, go across the ocean. Yeah, like imagine if you, showed, if you showed a C-130 in action to the Wehrmacht. You know, it would just been... Yeah. Just you know, broken down. I think C-130s can even drop tanks. I mean, not yeah. the not the new ones, but I think they during Vietnam. I think they dropped like an M60 or something from one of those things. Yeah, I could be wrong, but in any case, it's 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 pretty impressive. Well, that you know, kind of what I'm getting to is that it, you know, air freight is great because it's it's this fantastic hedge in a lot of ways against um, larger costs. So. You know, the elementary analysis is that you get killed on air freight costs because it is expensive. It, it can be very expensive, especially for the rapid uh, rapid transit costs, you know, within 24 hours or 12 hours. Uh, it's just absolute murder if you've ever seen the cost for these over the long term. But you're hedging. You know, you're basically saying, like, if we don't get this thing to this site or this project or whatever, um, we could be paying millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in damages. So is it worth it to spend 60 grand potentially to get this expensive rack or this expensive piece of uh, power plant, uh, whatever, or, you know, anything like to this, to this place? Um, yes, it's worth it because you're hedging. You're hedging against those costs. That's what that criticality is what air freight brings to the table. Um, unlike, let's say, uh, shipping or basically any other mode of, you know, of transportation, you know, the, prior to something like air freight, you had to plan in advance and you had to have a lot of redundancies. And oftentimes those redundancies would go the entire length of a project or you know, the entire length of a company never being used. They just sat there. Because you couldn't ever rely, you know, you had to get everything in place before a project started. You couldn't rely on, you know, suddenly like some truck driver is going to, you know, like drive for three days straight without stopping just to get your thing there in time. It's, it's not going to do that. So this is why air freight might not generate as much money as the other modes of transportation. Um, but it's probably the most critical and sort of like the way you perceive the modern economy where you can literally fix any problem almost instantly or feels like instantly is because of things like air freight. There's a, there's a cool chart in the book. I'm trying to use a little bit more of this now that we're getting through our passion projects. I wanted to use something from somebody else. Um, in the book on uh, energy efficiency by transportation mode. And I'll put it in the slideshow. It, uh, it has a, it's a two dimensional graph on the X axis. It's speed. So the further out from the origin, it's faster. And then on the Y axis, it's uh, energy cost. And so, you know, the, the best you'd want is low energy cost, f fast speed, right? I mean, you know, most bang for your buck, but it doesn't quite work that way. And it, it, it sort of looks, um, sort of looks like a logarithm and it, it it's this like parabola that kind of goes up in an arc and you have um you have like the things we've talked about super high energy costs 
helicopter, supersonic plane, um, cars below that, a jet plane, and a cargo plane are arguably cheaper than a car, according to this, in terms of energy usage per, I guess, amount moved um, for a given distance and energy. But it's it's kind of cool to see how it all plots out. Like at the at the bottom, the slowest and the lowest energy, you've got your tankers, your ships, but they're slow. And then the more energy you dump into it, the more you get speed, typically, like a train. And then after that, you get a truck, then you get a helicopter, then you get a plane, then you get a supersonic plane. But there's a trade-off. And so you have to like balance the cost versus the speed. And if the speed is so important you're willing to pay that cost. And it just, it's, I don't know how actually like scientific this is, but it's a rough guide to like what these trade-offs are, um, are built around and it it puts it into a quantitative framework, which is kind of cool. All right. So what do you want, what else do you want to go into? So you don't Um, want to talk about the math. Um, well we can talk about the math. What, what about the math that you, I mean, obviously I'm not going to like, like read an equation on the, on the, uh, podcast that that's that's dumb but um i thought it was intriguing how they talked about at at, honestly pretty high level just the systems or the techniques i should say at which um planners use to kind of make make system designs that's really what this is it's like okay i have a series of repetitive tasks and i want to build a system. It's the only reason you build a system if you have to do this more than once. Otherwise, like just do it. It's called a solution, not a system. But um, a system is like a design. And it's typically designed to solve a problem that happens a lot. So the telephone network is a system. It's It's got a bunch of parts that work together. Your car is a system. Um, and transportation is a system. And you can design it in a way such that you can maximize or minimize depending on your objective something. So just to give an example, uh, if you want to optimize either maximize or minimize speed, you could design a road network. Just like for example, if you're, if you're taking Google maps or something like that and you want to drive somewhere, there's different optimization algorithms that are run and you can choose which one you want to run. So you can optimize for speed. You can optimize, which means you, you want to minimize the time it takes to get somewhere. You can optimize for distance. So you want to minimize the distance traveled. And typically that's correlated with fuel efficiency. So the the further you go, the more fuel you have to burn, right? Obviously it depends on your speed as well, but those are two, rough examples. Um, and so in order to navigate in an efficient way, you make a choice. Now imagine you're actually building a road network with all of this in mind beforehand. That's a higher order of sophistication because you're not only taking your route into, into consideration, you're taking into consideration a lot of people's routes. And so you have to do it in a way so that those optimizations on an individual level are done in an efficient way and not in a wasteful way. So 
a grossly inefficient example just to sort of contrast this is, all right, I have uh, a town that's 10 miles away from another town. Um, it's a flat plane. There's no obstructions. What's the shortest distance between two points? Okay, hopefully everybody said a line. If you didn't say a line, it's a line. So an inefficient, stupid way to do it is I'm going to do a zigzag. That would cost more money to build. That would take every person's trip longer. There would be absolutely no reason to do that unless your intent is to slow people down. And they do that in places like school zones where you put roadblocks and stuff where you want to slow people down or parking lots of grocery stores or something. So that actually is by design. But somebody had to actually think about this. And so what you're doing is you're thinking about all of the patterns and you're kind of choosing the most common ones and you're trying to design something so that people don't have uh, waste, which can be defined several ways. But usually it's you know things that I, I mentioned like, okay, time, I don't want to waste time, I don't want to waste fuel, et cetera. So actually the book you recommended talks about this with some good examples, Hans, where they, they were looking at uh, constructing viaducts as opposed to, an, most people know what an aqueduct is, which is transporting water, but a viaduct is for transportation of people and goods. So there's, um, it's probably from Latin, but there's a, there's a road in um, uh, Europe called like the Via Appia, and it's like the Apian way. It's the Roman road that actually still exists. <clears throat> so a viaduct is the equivalent of an aqueduct for people and goods. So the there was a, I forgot his name, I didn't write it down, but it, it, there was a guy in New York who was building these overpasses, basically, that we call them today, but they're technically they're viaducts. And he used some mathematics basic economics, basically, it was just like, okay, I'm going to try to minimize the commute time for people between these places. So how do I do that? Well, there's various routes I can take. And then there's various costs of building these things. So you have to like, put all of this together. And then you compare the different designs. And then you pick the one that has the best characteristics. Uh, and so they conducted time studies, which is sort of a very basic uh, tailorist approach to this, where you're, you're sort of studying how people, uh, do tasks and how long does it take them? And then there's different ways of doing that task that takes them different amounts of time. And typically you want to find the way that accomplishes the same task with less time. That's the objective typically of a time study. So he applied that essentially to a commute. And so he constructed a series of viaducts that were, designed to minimize the time people would be sitting in traffic doing nothing other than listening to the radio, which is deemed probably by the, them and me as well as not very productive. So, um, and I think most people would agree, like you don't want to be sitting in traffic. It's kind of annoying, right? So that's, that's an, why it's important to like actually have some design philosophy to this stuff. Now, so far I've basically gone over some pretty simplistic examples and I don't want to make it too much more complicated, but there is a whole sector of mathematics and, uh, operations theory that goes into network, uh, 
optimization and, and network and graph theory is, is, is probably the best example people are somewhat familiar with from like the social network and stuff like that. Um, you can actually write algorithms to minimize uh, waste in these in these networks. And so that's this book kind of talks a little bit about that. And a lot of it is just ri- arithmetic and then throwing a lot of computer power at this stuff to kind of churn over multiple possibilities and then picking the one that works best. Um, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. But if you want to skip the brute force approach, there are some elegant mathematical approaches that actually are just shortcuts that find patterns within these networks that eliminate the need to actually iterate over every possibility because you don't, you don't have to do that. Like, I I guess a a practical example would be, well, we kind of know a straight line is probably going to be faster, right? So we can skip all the curves, but if we have a series of straight lines, okay, now it gets a little bit trickier. And there's this classic problem called this traveling salesman problem that says, okay, I have a series of straight lines, but I have to meet all these locations on my trip which route do I take to meet all those places with the least amount of back and forth effectively? And so there's algorithms for that um, without going into how they work. But the tools also exist today, which are kind of probably a little bit more intuitive, um, are built around this field called uh, GIS, which is Geographical Information Systems. There's a company called Esri, I forget what it stands for, but it's basically, it was like the first company that, that allowed you to do like map layers and they're really common. Uh, Estuary is really heavily used in uh, public planning offices, uh, for like, uh, building departments have them. They have, uh, water departments have them cause they have to have maps of like where all the water is. And then, um, public transportation departments typically have them because they want to plan road networks. And so a lot of these tools are visualizations of what hypothetical roads would look like. And it sort of helps you simulate in a visual way what a good design would look like versus a bad design. So the book goes into it more, but I think those are the highlights that I had. Um, Do you have anything else? Nope, not at all. All right. (laughs) Well, what's the future? Is Elon Musk going to build a, a hyperloop to Mars or what do people not want me to talk about him? Um, I don't know. I, I'm fine talking about Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't have anything uh, in my notes on him. I just, I just sort of pay attention once in a while, but it's, um, it's kind of cool that we're, we're even like talking about it. I mean, you know, I don't think we're going to have mining colonies anytime soon on the moon or in the asteroid belts or whatever your sci-fi du jour story tells you we're going to have because it's simply expensive and dangerous as hell. But I think at some point people will figure it out and it'll be kind of interesting to see how that works. You know, Mars, for example, I think it takes uh, three years to get there, something like that, which is insane. It took uh, like three days to get to the moon by comparison. <laughs> and that was still dangerous, <laughs> dangerous as hell. Um, but it, I mean, it's the equivalent of, uh, or the, not the equivalent, but it's probably worse, but it's the ana- analog to going across the ocean 700 mm. years ago, 600 years ago, whatever it was, 500 years ago. Um, 
that was scary. And this, this is going to take some people with some brains and some guts. And I don't think I'm going to be one of the first. That's for damn sure. Probably not in my lifetime, but what do you think? To go to Mars? No, I don't think I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I'm going. Uh, I, I would say, you know, one of the, one of the trends I see in transport systems, uh, maybe just in the United States going forward, there's going to be a lot of, uh, difficulty in, um, expanding the existing systems. So the big trend right now in the United States is, uh, reshoring, onshoring, so forth, reindustrialization. Peter Zihan is rubbing his hands together fervently. I know. Reshoring. Well, Peter Zihan listens to our show, which is where he gets his ideas. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's rubbing his hands. I just gave him a new idea. Um, at any level, uh, that guy, he, he's very good at synthesizing, but I, I really wonder how much of his material is original. Like I, I just, well, it's not, he does what we do. He looks at like textbooks and reads articles and yeah. just kind of figures it out. And, spitballs the difference is that we do this in our spare time every now and then <laughs> peter zihan gets invited to every like academic conference i don't understand i America. think part of it is like intentional i mean i'm sure of it is part of it is intentional but i i truly do not understand how he plans his schedule because if you watch his youtube channel He's like, hey, Peter Zihan here from the foothills of Colorado. Hey, Peter Zihan here reporting in from Patagonia. Hey, Peter Zihan here reporting in from Dresden, Germany. He's everywhere all the time. And obviously well, that's impossible. He's giving, his, but... he's giving his spiel. He has a standard spiel. For whatever reason, you know, industry executives around the world haven't heard of YouTube and haven't just looked him up <laughs> to know. watch his spiel. I don't know why you'd hire him to talk. Said, I mean, okay, it's not that complicated. That's an yeah. interesting hour-long talk. Right. I don't think I need to pay for this guy <laughs> to come all the way out here and tell me the no, same thing. No, don't, I don't get conferences, really. I mean, it's, it's just uh, – it made sense at one point, and if you're a salesperson, I yeah. guess you have to do it, but it's like – I mean, if you're just if it's just for education purposes, I mean, give me a break. I think it's for networking, really, is what it comes yeah. down to. But he's, um, he's he's funny. Sorry, go ahead. That's fine. So the future I see is that as there's there is some reshoring and onshoring, um, and as the U.S. population grows in a lot of the areas where there will be more focused industrialization, uh they're going to have a lot of difficulty, particularly when most of the industrial transport is now utilizing the same highways that commuters do. It's all highways. It's, it's mostly highway-based in a lot of areas. So th this is going to be very difficult to handle. Um, you're going to need to undertake huge, huge reinvestments in the highway system to accommodate increased trucking flow. It's already struggling with what's currently there and increased commuter flow. Um, to offset that, uh, you're going to need to to cheaply offset that. You'll need to really work on freight rail, which has traditionally been, ever since trucking really took over, still been a good release valve. When trucking prices are too high or there's too much congestion in, in certain metro areas, mm -hmm. 
you can use the freight rail system. The problem is that the freight rail system is sort of falling apart in real time um, and is now looking at major labor issues, cost margin issues. It's just not doing well. Um, I foresee that you'll probably, you know, you'll probably have at least one more major merger of freight rail in the United States, probably go down to two or three companies. And uh, um, it'll, you know, they'll try and expand it out as much as they can. But they're going to have to. There's really no recourse. Can I, can I uh, ask you, Yeah. where is your basis for saying that the freight rail system is deteriorating? I mean, is it the... Um, Ohio chemical spill or what, what What are you basing that on? Well, that's just a microcosm of it. So okay. the incidents of freight rail accidents have been going up year over year for years. Now. I uh, have seen the opposite, but go ahead. Where have you seen the opposite? Bureau of Transportation Safety Board, what, NTSB, whatever that stands for, National Transport Safety Board. Hmm. Okay. What I have seen, though, is that the passenger rail network is garbage for obvious reasons. So the, the freight rail system has some major problems. One of the big problems with the freight rail system is that it hasn't received a major up. The rail system in of itself hasn't received a major upgrade, most of it, in decades. And the well, four, they're the privately four, owned, first of all. So yes, and not, I understand yeah. that. I understand that. These companies have not invested in them. Part of it is that the freight rail business just hasn't done well in like 40 years. Mm. The freight rail, it, it was it was on the verge of collapse, I think in the early 80s or before the early 80s. That was true, but that was I true. think Warren Buffett bought Burlington Northern Santa Warren Fe Buffett for a reason. And the Reagan administration basically rest, you know, lifelined it effectively. No, he's made and, money because freight, the, the, what they have is basically a monopoly. Well, I'm not they saying they didn't make money. I'm saying the have. Reagan administration like lifelined it. I'm not saying they haven't made money. It was deregulated. Um, it was deregulated. Under, actually under that, Carter. That was but... that was the lifeline. It was like okay. completely deregulating it. So the freight rail system hasn't reinvested a lot in its rails at all, really, and its operations platforms. Um, from everything I've read, now the problem with that is that. These businesses are already struggling on the margins. They already have a lot of overhead. There's not that much more money to be made. So for them to outlay some grand vision for, let's say, um, you know, revitalizing the rail network itself for the next 30 years would be a big undertaking. They're already struggling to you know, make profit margins that they need to make every year to take pieces of the system offline to conduct like major revitalizations just isn't in the cards. I think that's one of the problems. Number two really was this, this labor strike issue that we saw earlier was microcosm of a larger trend that I've heard about anecdotally that people are leaving the railroads in general. It's not seen as a good job. There's not a lot of career growth. It's difficult to get ahead. A lot of the workforce that maintains the operations have aged out or are aging out. No one really seems to be interested in replacing them. So this can become very challenging for the rail system. This is why I think that at least one or two major mergers will happen. 
as the number of people capable of managing the railways basically age out and retire and they reduce in number, um, it'll make sense for the railways to simply just... I, I did hear COVID was an issue because yeah. they the supply chain, without going into the details of actually what that means, was a mess during COVID. And part of that was the factories were not accessible from China. And so a lot of the subsequent downstream transport methods of getting those containers from the ships that were no longer being offloaded even or sent uh, onto the the trains and the road and the trucks was there was just a collapse in the supply of all that stuff. And so the railroads ended up slashing a lot of their workers. And then when COVID quote unquote ended the uh or the governments basically let people get back to normal um they had a hard time hiring those people back that's what i heard and so yeah they were having issues then catching catching up um i i, I don't know the details of a, of a strike but i mean if you do you know that, i take your word for it yeah well there was nearly a strike uh, was it earlier this year? And uh, now, is that is that company specific, or is it like the UAW where they represent all rail workers? So it's not. Yeah, the, it seems like the rail workers are a bit more decentralized. It's different professions in the rail industry seem to have their own micro unions. So some of them were actively striking. Some of them were threatening to strike, um, and some of them were on the fence and. That was when Biden sort of came in and staved off a strike. He did so by passing a very strange bill working with the House and the Senate where railroad workers could be forced by the government to work because they were deemed too critical to the, to the country's infrastructure mm. to not work, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting deal. I hope these... Union guys remember that next year. Same thing happened in uh, the 80s under Reagan with the uh, flight controllers. Air traffic controllers, yeah. Yeah. So I did want to bring up, so overall, um, over the last three years, there's been a 5% increase in freight rail accidents year over year. Okay. The big trend um, from 2000 onwards is that it's down – you know, down like double digits, but the last several years it's shot up. I believe that. Now, I, th- I think part, that, probably part of that is the staffing issue. They probably yeah, can't yeah. hire so back those that, guys you're talking about that retired after COVID. Yeah. They get all these new guys in that don't know what they're doing, and they they probably overclock the stupid locomotive right. on the on the turn, and then it falls off so because it was going too fast or something. It also depends on company. So Norfolk Southern has had accidents spiking over the last decade. Um, and there were people sending the alarms to their freight rail system in general in 2020, mm. basically stating that its infrastructure was starting to fall apart, mm-hmm. that the operator staff, even prior to COVID, this is, there's basically articles and papers coming out in January of 2020 arguing that you know, effectively uh, the operators in particular are struggling. They're not able to keep the freight rail system online, not even just to keep it safe, but are struggling to actually maintain contracts. So overall, it you know the trend since 2000 was looking good. It has started to rapidly fall apart, like you know, 
most of the good trend has been reversed the last few years. In some companies like Norfolk Southern, it's been bad for a decade now, and it's only getting worse. So if that is a bellwether for anything, um, it will be that over time the fragile system will actually regress. It will get worse and less efficient, mm-hmm. more accident prone. Um, I foresee that as being the big problem because you're going to have lots of trucks on the road, um, more and more commuters on the road, traffic congestion becomes a nightmare, third-party logistics companies struggle to maintain order so, contracts. So, sounds like a golden era for trains. It sounds like there's an opportunity. You would think it sounds like a golden era for trains, but the commercial freight guys got to figure it out. Like They have to reinvest. There's I, no way. I think, there's I think no way. I think the yeah, problem right now is interest rates. But I think if I mean, you make it enticing, well, that's the other thing. Interest rates now, it, it's too late. They should have done this 15 years ago. Now they're screwed. So the Infrastructure Act or whatever the hell, the IRA or nonsensical. I don't even speak, think that had any I don't major think, provisions. Yeah, right. I think you right. It had nothing. I was wondering about that. It, it was like passenger rail. And who gives a shit about passenger rail no one, in the United States? No one. <laughs> who would, I mean, other than, other than the Acela Corridor, who yeah. is taking wide, you know, long passenger rail in no America, one. realistically? No the Amish. I mean, I get, I get metro rail, you know, using that inside of cities and metro areas, but pa- like long term. Oh no, no, or, yeah, it, it makes sense when you have high rail? density populations. Yes, the United yeah. States is not a high density population country. It yeah. really isn't. I mean, in the East Coast is probably the only real concentration of a lot of people in a small space, but the rest of the country is pretty spread out, and yeah, it uh, yeah. it's just dumb to build. Uh, you know, we're not Japan. I mean, Japan, you know, even France, you know, it sort of makes sense. Um, they have a lot of uh, rails, but Japan, it's like, oh, look at, you know, look at Japan. They're they're an island with half the size. Well, at one point it was half the size, of the pop- about, about a third of the population size. But the size of Japan is, is like, you can fit it in California. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, the density is probably <laughs> 10 times or more higher. So it you makes could also, sense. Can, I've, I've heard this convincingly argue that at least some meaningful proportion of the train system in Japan was effectively just like, you know, rampant job creation, like just making trains. It is now. I think the, for first, no the first Shinkansen yeah. that they built probably paid off pretty well. But I yeah. think now after, you know, the, the bubble economy popped, 30 years ago and they're still i mean japan um despite you know having a pretty good trade balance is i think like as a percentage of their gdp one of the worst indebted countries in the world because they they just pumped all of their fiscal spending into uh domestic infrastructure and i'm sure some of that was good but i mean there's a joke uh i probably brought it up when we were talking about japan but there's a joke about Japan where they ran out of rivers to, uh, to coat with concrete um, because they, uh, they were just trying to, you know, stimulate the economy. I actually met um, a guy in Japan who worked on one of those, but anyway, um, yeah, they, 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 they blew a lot of crap on unnecessary infrastructure. I think, but a lot of that was after they were running into economic headwinds and they were trying to stimulate so that's been a more recent thing. Um, but I think in Tokyo, 
and even places like Kyoto and, and Kobe or wherever, um, those subway systems are really logical, like in terms of economic economics, like they make a lot of sense. I think where it doesn't make sense is like building a Shinkansen to Hokkaido or something like under the water, like, cause nobody lives up there. They have a bunch of cows and stuff, but it's, um, true story. But the, uh, the stuff they're, they're it's, uh, they've run out of a low hanging fruit in other words. Yeah. So anyway, well, you could argue that's what a lot of the provisions about passenger rail here are. It's just like, well, we got to give something people something to do, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, you don't because U S infrastructure sucks. I mean, there's so much low hanging fruit because we just don't yeah. have a very organized population anymore that it would make actually a lot of economic sense to fix the potholes. I mean, we could actually build manufacturing again. If we could actually not have congestion everywhere, um, that would be nice. And you could be more competitive if you did that. Um, yeah, I think this is, this is going to be a critical issue in the next 10 years. I, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you that, you know, the congestion problem will be, Number one of the number one problems that manufacturers will tell you know the government's going to ask what you put yeah. your problems. Yeah, it's congest. There's it's congestion. Yeah, it's it, bad. It takes us, you know, it takes us three times as long to get something from A to B, it's and stupid. that slows down daily yeah. operations. Yeah, it's it, super it's dumb. It's going to be congestion. Like Los and, Angeles. I mean, I haven't been there in a yeah. while, but I remember like there was um, like on the freeway they have like stop signs now to like try to try to manage the difficulty of, of just congestion. Because if you actually limit the number of cars at a given time, the speed actually increases because people don't like do stupid shit when they're, they're crammed together, you know, people start acting inefficiently. So that's why they have those on-ramp lights and, even like, I think it was like in the middle of the friggin' freeway, they had like a light. It's like, nope, we can't go anymore. Like stop like, or slow down. It was, um, it was pretty surreal to see that. Yeah. Glad I don't live there. 